Welcome. The meeting will now come to order. Welcome and thank you for joining us at today's hearing entitled A 2022 Review of the Farm Bill, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. After brief opening remarks, members will receive testimony from our distinguished witnesses today, and then the hearing will be open to questions. And I will start first with my opening uh, statement. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another important hearing, which is the continuation of our work to review the 2018 Farm Bill and prepare for the 2023 Farm Bill. Today's hearing will review the 2018 Farm Bill provisions, excuse me, related to a very important bill provisions the USDA program, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. SNAP is one of the most impactful programs that we work on in this committee. It is the nation's largest anti-hunger program. It addresses the food insecurity of those most in need in our country. In 2020, 10.5% of U.S. households, or 13.8 million Americans, were food insecure. And the COVID-19 pandemic made it very difficult for many families to even afford the basic necessities, especially including food. But thankfully, throughout the pandemic, SNAP has worked as it should, serving as many economic stabilitors, uh, stabilizers for our nation. In 2020, SNAP is estimated to have lifted 2.9 million Americans out of poverty and ensure that millions of our friends, families, and neighbors could put food on their tables for their families, despite the difficult times we were facing. And as we grapple with the ongoing impact of this pandemic and new challenges to our food system, including from the Russian terrible criminal invasion of Ukraine. I know SNAP will continue to be a critical lifeline for the low-income Americans and ensuring they are able to purchase nutritionally adequate diet. In 2018, our farm bill passed with a strong bipartisan support including many SNAP-related provisions. One of the most impactful has been the mandate that USDA reevaluate the Thrifty Food Plan, 
The resulting 2021 Thrifty Food Plan was the first in five decades to not be held cost neutral, allowing it to truly reflect the cost of an inadequate diet. And thanks to the 2018 Farm Bill, low-income Americans receiving SNAP benefits on average received $36.24 more per person per month, or about $1.19 more per person per day. And in my own district, Georgia's 13th district, the latest data shows that more than 35,000 households participated in SNAP, or 13% of all households in my district, and each of them are seeing an increase in their SNAP benefits thanks to the Thrifty Food Plan reevaluation. And it's not just Georgia. The impact that increase is in benefits is being felt across every community in our nation, including rural communities, which participate in SNAP at a higher rate and experiences a larger economic impact from SNAP benefits spending than even in our urban areas. Additionally, the 2018 Farm Bill included important provisions impacting SNAP, employment and training, the quality control system, nutrition education, and much more. I look forward to hearing from our distinguished panel today about these provisions as well as future opportunities to maintain and improve this critical program. One particular area of interest for me, looking forward, is veteran hunger. Research has found that veterans have a 7.4% greater risk for food insecurity than non-veterans, and rates are even higher among our veterans with disabilities. 33.6% of whom face food insecurity. And that's why I'm working closely with our subcommittee chair lady of this, the general lady from Connecticut, who is spearheading excellent legislation to address this, and we will hear more from her on this later. Representative Hayes is the chairman of our subcommittee on nutrition oversight and department operations, and she's doing an excellent job. She has introduced bipartisan legislation to make it easier for veterans with disabilities to assess SNAP and Feed Hungry Veterans Act, of which I am a proud co-sponsor, co-leading with that bill. And as I said, we will hear more from the chair lady on this later. I look forward to working with all the members of our committee 
on this important legislation, and I hope this hearing will provide us all an excellent opportunity to evaluate ways that we can work together to improve SNAP by making it more accessible for Americans facing food insecurity. Thank you again. We look forward to our panelists. And with that, I'd like to now welcome my good friend, our distinguished ranking member from Pennsylvania, ranking member Thompson. Uh, Chairman, thank you so much. Good morning, everybody. Welcome, Deputy Undersecretary Dean and Administrator Long. Uh, Administrator, I, I hear this is your first appearance at a congressional hearing, and so uh, we're glad to have you here, and welcome to the Historic Agriculture Committee hearing room. Um, and I, I see Associate Administrator Shaheen has accompanied you both. Uh, Ms. Shaheen, I... I Please accept uh, my heartfelt gratitude for your work at at the department, uh, and I, I uh, you're uh, and I understand you're going to be retiring, and and both your presence and your performance are going to be sadly missed. Uh, thank you for everything you've done, and I wish you a peaceful, easy retirement. Uh, moving on to say this hearing is long overdue is an understatement, so I'm so glad we're all here today. Uh, the agency, which occupies more than 80% of this committee's spending, has gone unchecked for nearly four years. Uh, each section of Title IV of the 2018 Farm Bill has made nominal changes to a program that has since exploded to serve more than 40 million individuals at a current cost of roughly $9 billion per month. And what frustrates me most at this moment, and, and, the, and the nutrition title is important to me as a former chair of the Nutrition Subcommittee in the 2018 Farm Bill, I'm very frustrated at this moment that my, my Democratic colleagues have already drawn a, a line in the sand that this program will not be touched in the next reauthorization of the Farm Bill. That's that's why we have reauthorizations, to make sure we're getting it right and that we're making adjustments where needed. Uh, how can we be so certain everything in Title IV is perfect or untouchable? Now, I disagree, and I'm, I'm sure that we'll hear today there are things we can improve and things that we can change. Uh, and, and quite frankly, as in, on the Agriculture Committee, being open-minded and preparing for the next farm bill, any farm bill, is, is a really good state of mind. Uh, being short-sighted on policy improvements shortchanges the millions of households who depend on SNAP when their lives take a turn, when they find themselves in, in financial distress, often for, for a short period of times. So despite my colleague's narrow outlook, I think we need to contemplate SNAP through four principles, particularly as we shift from emergency spending and, and administration to more targeted, informed programming. First, we need to further explore how do we serve recipients through innovation and flexibility. If the pandemic has taught us one thing, it is there is no one way to serve families in need. Second principle, we, we must think about the best ways to guide recipients to independence through employment, education, and training, you know, while providing further nutritional support. Now, waivers related to work under the former administration were logical. They're, they're clear, they're now clearly key, uh, they are now keeping, uh, clearly keeping employable individuals idle and disengaged. And it's time to talk about reemployment with a specific focus on those who have left the labor force. Third principle, we can't deny programs integrity 
Uh, we cannot deny uh, program integrity has been compromised. I, I want to work with the department to return to and maintain the virtues of SNAP. That includes normal modes of data collection and normal modes of analysis and dissemination of information to ensure the responsible use of program funds. And the final principle I would offer up that is certainly guiding, uh, uh, that sure guide our work, guides my, my work, uh, and at last, and last, and perhaps most importantly, we must come together to improve access and promote healthy foods and improve nutrition, employment, health care costs, and general longevity are highly dependent on the foods that we consume. Together with modernized nutrition education initiatives, the nutrition research funding secured in the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, and the existing library of research on healthy eating, USDA, is uniquely positioned to improve the nutrition of millions of households, not just those deemed healthy. Now, I, I th- uh, I think my colleagues across the aisle can agree with each of these principles. Where we diverge is, is how to preserve the program uh, for those in actual need without regulatory loopholes and fuzzy interpretations of the law, both of which exploit the very intent of the program. Now, where we diverge is the, is the reality that this one title will cost taxpayers nearly $1 trillion over the next 10 years. With this exorbitant spending increase, namely because of the less than transparent and questionable thrifty food plan update, the Biden administration and the current majority consciously put a colossal financial and political target on any future farm bill, compromising not only nutrition title, but the 11 other titles which support and protect every farmer, rancher, forester, and rural community, the very people that actually provide the food that we try to, to uh, um deliver uh, for nutrition support. Um, adding insult to injury, many of us learned of the Thrifty Food Plan scheme through a choreographed effort by pro-poverty advocates and their media allies. Beginning on January 22nd, 2021, more than three dozen outlets, including the Washington Post, NBC News, Bloomberg, CNN, and CBS News, uniformly touted the department's work to rapidly proceed with the egregious TFP update. And while this will continue, while we will continue to debate this attempt at, at executive overreach, I, I do want to ask one thing of you, Madam Deputy Undersecretary, just to be more forthcoming. As a ranking member of this committee, I prefer not to learn direct, I prefer to learn directly from the administration, not lobbyists or reporters or the internet. And lastly, I do hope today allows for some conversation on pandemic-related policies and spending. I, uh, uh, Mr. Chairman, I ask uh, unanimous consent to submit for the record uh, an April 15th timely article by the Wall Street Journal editorial board entitled The Eternal COVID Emergency. Without objection. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I remain concerned pandemic aid is is set to become endemic aid and that various issues caused by this administration's own actions and at times inaction have caused my colleagues and their mouthpieces within the media thinking uh, emergency allotments and SNAP-related waivers should be carried on in perpetuity, and I beg to differ. With that in mind, I also look forward to an implementation update on each of the relevant sections of the 2018 Farm Bill and the agency's timeline to implement any outstanding provisions. I hope we can have an honest conversation about what's working and what's not working and how can we move forward. Thank you uh, again, uh, Ms. Dean and Ms. Long. And with that, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you, Ranking Member, and now I'd like to welcome the Distinguished Nutrition Oversight and Department Operations Subcommittee Chairwoman, the Gentlewoman from Connecticut, Ms. Hayes, 
for your opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Thompson, and this committee for hosting this very important hearing. And thank you to our guests from the USDA, Deputy Undersecretary Dean and Administrator Long for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and expertise. I want to first take the opportunity to frame this conversation. The 2023 Farm Bill will not be like any other Farm Bill. It will be a seminal, historic piece of legislation. Over the past two years, we have seen our community struggle with food insecurity caused by an unprecedented global crisis. We have also seen communities come together to implement creative solutions, from expanding the capacity of food banks, to partnering with local farms, to ensuring that children could access school meals through electronic benefits and non-congregate settings. The Farm Bill is our first opportunity to recognize the unique challenges that many people face and our commitment to our communities to, to have permanent solutions. It's our first chance to respond to the glaring gaps in nutrition policy highlighted so clearly through the past three years with long-term improvements and solutions. Of course, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, will be central to that effort. The vital importance of SNAP is not theoretical. I have experienced firsthand how the program gives people stability when they are facing life's challenges and have brought recipients before my subcommittee to share their stories before Congress. I believe wholeheartedly in the mission of SNAP, the life-changing impact it has on recipients and the incredible support it provides our national economy and food systems. SNAP is a highly responsive program which serves as a stabilizer in times of economic downturn, something we saw clearly during the pandemic. It provides economic stimulus to households in every community. SNAP is a targeted program which serves the lowest income Americans, incentivizes work, and provides long and short-term health benefits to those who participate. As a result of the 2021 Thrifty Food Plan reevaluation mandated by the last Farm Bill, the impact of SNAP is growing as recipients receive more adequate benefits, specifically an average of $1.19 more per person per day. This is modest, but the impact increases in our communities and has, a has made tangible improvements to the everyday lives of my neighbors. However, we know that there are still people who are falling through the cracks. USDA research has found that veterans in particular face a greater risk for food insecurity than non-veterans. On our subcommittee, Rep. Bacon and I had a hearing last year <coughs> on the levels of veteran hunger that permeate our communities. I heard directly from veterans on how the lack of access to SNAP programs negatively impacts their lives, their ability to look for work, their mental health, and their nutrition needs. Their stories echoed the research, which shows that an unacceptable 33.6% of disabled veterans are food insecure. That is not a statistic that any of us should be proud of. After the hearing, I began working on a legislative fix to address the issue, and I introduced the bipartisan Feed Hungry Veterans Act with the support of Chairman Scott and Rep or Delegate Amada Coleman-Radwagon. My bipartisan bill will address veteran hunger by making it easier for veterans with disabilities to access SNAP benefits. In addition to exploring this issue further, I look forward to hearing more today from Deputy Undersecretary Dean and Administrator Long about the provisions in the 2018 Farm Bill, 
the status of implementation, and recommendations for the upcoming Farm Bill. As the chairwoman of the Subcommittee on Nutrition Oversight and Department Operations, it is critical for me to hear from USDA about how we stabilize and sustain nutrition programs and how we can improve them in the upcoming Farm Bill. We spend a lot of money on a lot of programs in Congress. Programs that feed people have to be included in those numbers. I don't know about schemes or media plots, but what I do know is that I have hungry people in my district. And as their representative, I'm going to make sure that I can do everything that I can to close those gaps because most of those people are children. I thank you again, Mr. Chair, for holding this committee hearing today and look forward to hearing from the panel who has joined us. And with that, I yield back. Thank you, Chair Lady Hayes. And now I'd like to welcome uh, the Distinguished Nutrition Oversight and Department Operations Subcommittee Ranking Member, the gentleman from Nebraska, Mr. Bacon. Please you. give your opening statement. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to share some thoughts today. I want to also thank uh, the Deputy Undersecretary uh, Dean and Administrator Long for being here. Uh, I'd like just to start by saying we're so blessed to live in this great country. You know, we're the greatest of nations. Uh, we've, our free market system and our freedoms have produced more prosperity uh, than any nation ever, ever has had. We've elevated more people out of poverty uh, than any other country. And so we should keep that in mind. And we, as a great nation, we want to live up to our values and our morals. And that has provided a good safety nut to protect our citizens. Our SNAP is a part of that safety nut. And it's, you know, it's intended use is to be a supplement, but not 100% subsidy to offset costs. I feel like we got to stress that periodically because some folks uh, want to treat it more than just a, a, sub, a you know, a partial uh, payment of the costs. So as we think of the next Farm Bill and really the future of SNAP, I echo the ranking members' comments in that we need to have real conversations about how to make this program better. We owe it to our taxpayers and to those who use the program uh, to make it more efficient, to make it more effective, and we want to ensure that it's providing a hand up and not just a handout. We want to help people get out of poverty. And as the ranking member said, too, we just can't draw a line in the sand and say this program is untouchable. That's not how good policy comes about. So as the agency walks through the implementation updates, I hope my colleagues think through areas for improvement and how to use this magnificent amount of money that we have and to do so more efficiently and better. Uh, the anecdotes I hear about some of these non-government organizations that serve as an intermediary having outlandish administrative expenses must be stopped. We should review that. I think our taxpayers expect us to take a look at that and reduce those costs. And lastly, for the sake of our country, our military readiness, in the health care of our system, and for the, our young adults. We need to do a better job and focus on how to target and, and, and make uh, healthy eating habits better. We need to stress the education here. 72% uh, of our young adults today do not qualify to join the military, mainly for fitness. And so I bring this up not because of the military point, but it's for the health and the future of these young adults. Uh, we want them to have a better future. So this is a problem our country needs to look at and tackle. So I hope uh, the conversation today lends, lends to this focus and does better. And I'd also like to just echo uh, Chair, Chairman Hayes, who I work with in the Nutrition Committee, about veterans and SNAP. Uh, I'm in the Armed Services Committee as well, and we want to look at enlisted pay and, and adjust it. Uh, there's no reason why our junior enlisted 
uh, should fall into this uh, and qualify for SNAP. We got to do better there. So with that, I yield back, Mr. Chair, and I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman Beggin. And now the chair will request that other members submit their opening statements for the record so witnesses may begin their testimony and to ensure that there is ample time for questions. Let me introduce our distinguished panel. Our witnesses today is Ms. Stacy Dean, who is the Deputy Undersecretary for Food, Nutrition, Consumer Services, and the United States Department of Agriculture. She is accompanied today by Ms. Cindy Long, the Administrator of USDA's Food and Nutrition Services. Deputy Undersecretary Dean, please begin when you are ready. Thank you, Chairman Scott, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the committee for inviting me to talk about the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP. Uh, as you noted, I'm Stacy Dean, Deputy Undersecretary for Food, Nutrition, and Consumer Services at USDA, and I'm joined by Administrator Cindy Long. Today, I'll talk about the impact and importance of SNAP, its response to the pandemic, and the work underway to build back better to an even stronger program. SNAP is the most far-reaching, powerful tool available to ensure that all Americans can afford healthy food. It's a lifeline for tens of millions of Americans. It reduces poverty and food hardship. And SNAP participation during early childhood is linked to better long-term health, education, and employment outcomes. About 70% of SNAP participants are children, older Americans, or adults with disabilities. The program supports households from major cities to rural America alike, helping low-income workers, seniors with fixed incomes, and parents struggling to make end meets to put food on the table. Households use food uh, SNAP benefits to purchase food at local businesses, benefiting the store where they shop, the truck driver who delivered it, and the farmers who produced it. As intended, SNAP expanded early in the pandemic in response to sudden increased need. But SNAP's powerful response to the pandemic has been a team effort. Congress took swift action to strengthen the program in recognition of unprecedented hardship, temporarily increasing SNAP benefit amounts, protecting eligibility for select groups, and providing USDA with special authority to allow states to adapt program operations to serve struggling households safely. USDA worked with retailers and states to expand an online purchasing option to meet households' needs during the pandemic. And today, more than 97% of households can use their benefits uh, to buy groceries online. And states did the extraordinary work to process a dramatic uptick in applications and deliver benefits to struggling households, all while radically shifting their operations to respond to public health considerations. The bold action that we've taken together to help Americans during a time of crisis and get back on their feet has made a meaningful difference. Looking ahead, I want to touch on a few efforts we're undertaking to strengthen SNAP in the long term. So let's start with the Thrifty Food Plan reevaluation. As directed by Congress, last year USDA reevaluated the Thrifty Food Plan, the basis for calculating SNAP benefits, to reflect the cost of a cost conscious, practical, nutritious diet. The reevaluation concluded that the cost is 21% higher than the previous plan, which translates uh, as um, 
<clears throat> sorry, which translates to about $1.19 per person per day or $0.40 cents per person per meal. This resulted in the first increase in real purchasing power of SNAP benefits since the Thrifty was introduced some 45 years ago. We're also working to support opportunity through SNAP's Employment and Training Program, or ENT. In 2018, Congress acted to improve the quality of ENT programs, emphasizing evidence-based practices, uh, ensuring that we match participants with the right services and partner with state workforce systems. The Farm Bill signaled that ENT programs should not just be bigger, they should be better. We view strengthening ENT as an ongoing effort and welcome your continued partnership. And finally, we're, we're elevating FNS's longstanding work to improve nutrition security, which means having consistent and equitable access to healthy, safe, affordable food. USDA is prioritizing nutrition security for all Americans by ensuring our programs provide meaningful support, connecting all Americans with healthy, safe, affordable food sources, developing, translating, and enacting nutrition science through partnership, and prioritizing equity every step of the way. Our goal is to come out of the pandemic in a better place than where we started. We're seeking to build on the effectiveness of SNAP and ensure it works for those it's intended to serve. And let me just tick off a few more areas that we're exploring. Parity for the territories that don't have access to SNAP, food sovereignty and self-governance for tribal nations, reducing barriers for vulnerable groups like veterans, bolstering program integrity by strengthening oversight and data collection, minimizing errors and enhancing fraud detection, and modernizing SNAP payment and shopping options, all while ensuring our programs are accessible to those who are eligible. The Farm Bill represents an important opportunity to build on the remarkable success of SNAP, and we stand ready to partner to you. And before I finish, let me just thank the ranking member for acknowledging Associate Administrator Jessica Shaheen and her decades of service to this incredible program. We are going to miss her after she retires, but she leaves an incredible legacy. Um, thank you, and we look forward to answering your questions. Deputy Secretary Dean, thank you so much for your very important testimony. At this time, members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority, alternating between majority and minority members. And you will be recognized for five minutes each in order to allow us to get as many questions in as we can. And again, as I always tell you, please keep your microphones muted until you are recognized so that we can minimize background noise. And I always start the questions. I recognize myself for five minutes. And uh, Miss Dean, I have an important question I want to ask you. Several of my labor union friends in Georgia have brought up the issue of SNAP privatization to me. And as you know, SNAP law requires that states use merit system personnel to conduct SNAP certification, interviews, and eligibility determinations. However, I understand that states do have the flexibility to use non-merit staff or contractors for work that does not involve SNAP participant contact. 
And states are also permitted to use contractors for specific purposes that include SNAP participation contract for FNS approval. However, there has been talk about expanding the use of non-married staff during the pandemic to address increased caseload and staffing shortages. However, I'm very concerned that expanding the use of contractors could reduce the quality of service that SNAP recipients receive. So my question to you is, do you believe that additional non-merit employee flexibilities are needed for states to manage their current SNAP caseloads? And if non-merit staffing flexibility were expanded, what impacts would you anticipate in having, if any, on our beneficiaries? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the question. Uh, let me just start with FNS is absolutely committed to working with states to uh, basically continuously improve program operations. Uh, we, we and they uh, are constantly assessing new technology, new ways of organizing the business, new platforms to deliver services, and uh, that can um, uh, reframe the question around what is the role of, uh, of uh, state versus contract staff. Um, we are constantly answering new questions about that. Um, I think our general guiding principle through all of this is where the statute lies, which is that the merit systems personnel a role, I, meaning state or local uh, government workers, really need to hold uh, the most critical functions, which is that eligibility determination, and for us that includes the interview with clients, and of course access to highly private personal information. Uh, so uh, I don't believe that we would be looking for an expansion in that. But let me just say that uh, the guidance that the previous administration put out in 2020 that outlined areas where states could use contract staff, I uh, very much support and we're in constant dialogue with states about where their options are. I think many of them don't appreciate how much flexibility they have in the current system. Uh, it may mean that they've got to reorganize their business model a little bit. Um, but there are lots of places for them to bring in uh, non-merit staff. And you asked me what would happen if it were expanded. Um, you know, look, we had some experience with privatization experiments in the past for those core eligibility functions, uh, and it didn't go well. Uh, now, granted, it was quite a while ago, but it was somewhat disastrous and, the, uh, with, and ended up making service worse, and states had to pull back from it. So experience would suggest it's a pretty risky endeavor to, um, uh, to shift the roles as we've experienced them for the past four decades. Um. Uh, Ms. Dean, now I'm informed that the latest data available shows that in 2018, my district, Georgia's 13th, had more than 35,000 households participating in SNAP, 60% or nearly two-thirds of which had children in their homes. Now, research shows that children receiving SNAP 
have better health outcomes than their counterparts who are not receiving the benefits, including reduced uh, likelihood of obesity, high blood pressure, heart disease, and diabetes. And in, in adulthood, it grows to that extent. And improved economic outcomes. So tell us, how does the 2021 Thrifty Food Plan re-evaluation re uh, uh, make it possible for families with children to provide their young ones with adequately nutritious meals that would make it easier for them to succeed in both the long and the short term? Uh, well, thank you, Ms. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for acknowledging um, SNAP's strength, both in terms of its ability to make sure households can purchase food today, but also uh, children who are well-nourished, uh, mm -hmm. particularly early in life, do far better later in life. And we have fairly uh, conclusive evidence on SNAP's role there. I think what we found when we did the reevaluation was that at least the the it's sometimes we have to always separate the thrifty from SNAP, but we found that the basis for the benefit uh, was not putting uh, was not sufficient to purchase an adequate diet, uh, low cost, uh, practical uh, diet. Uh, so basically, healthy food wasn't within reach. Uh, and with this adjustment, we certainly hope uh, that uh, that with healthy food in reach, we will only strengthen uh, SNAP's uh, uh, impressive impacts on families and children. Well, thank you very much for your answers. They were thorough, very informative. This issue is important to all of us in this country and certainly important to me in my district. So I look forward to working with you as we make forward progress on this issue. And now I recognize the uh, gentleman from Pennsylvania, our ranking member, Thompson. You're now recognized for your question. Well, I thank the gentleman from Georgia for the recognition. Um, Deputy Undersecretary Dean, once again, welcome. Um, you know, there's coalitions who are vehemently opposed, support restrictions, particularly of sweet, sugar sweetened beverages, because they've, they've been found to lead to an array of diet related diseases. While, well, I don't want to, I don't want to visit the merits of these proposals. I, I do want to better understand what the agency and the department are doing to focus on nutrition. What is the horizon uh, or over the horizon to ensure better use of nutrition education dollars to support healthy eating initiatives? Well, thank you, uh, Ranking Member. I think uh, this issue couldn't be of more paramount importance to the Secretary uh, and to myself as well. Uh, the overall, right, uh, Americans' overall um, eating habits and uh, its impact on their diet health is alarming, and we, we really need a whole-of-government response uh, to make sure that all Americans are aware uh, of the need to eat better uh, and uh, in, in order to support better diet health. Uh, with respect to SNAP, I think the, and, and all of our programs, honestly, we have a four-pillared approach. First is to ensure that our programs are providing meaningful support so that the benefits are adequate and are informed by nutrition science. You've heard about the thrifty adjustment. We're going to be uh, proposing changes to WIC and the school food program to reflect the 2020 dietary guidelines. We're required to do that by law. That's uh, forthcoming changes. 
We also believe uh, promoting healthy foods is important. So programs like GUSNIP or um, uh, incentives programs that you all included in the 2018 Farm Bill offer a terrific opportunity. And honestly, the Retailer Incentives Program is just underutilized, and I hope that we can work with our grocers uh, to take advantage of that and uh, and offer incentives for healthy food for our program or for our SNAP participants. And I would say, uh, speaking to the notion of public-private partnerships and uh, agreeing with uh, Ranking Member Bacon, th- there's so much more we can do uh, to leverage our tools to promote healthy eating. We've got my plate at USDA. Uh, we need to we need to crank it up on that and, and just make that a tool that uh, tens of millions of Americans are using and uh, are aware of. And I, I we work with tens of thousands of nutritionists, healthcare providers, educators across the country. Uh, it's important, I think, for for US, USDA feels it's very important that we um, we start singing all from the same song sheet and really leveraging up the importance of uh, diet, healthy food, and it's profound consequences on long-term health. Well, I wouldn't be true to form if I didn't say as as you're looking at beverages and you kind of opened it up across outside even the jurisdiction of this committee with child nutrition stuff. Uh, I've always appreciated Secretary Vilsack's support uh, for milk fat and anything that we can do to move from 1% to 3.5% milk fat, which would be whole milk. Uh, would be best for our kids. Nobody's force-feeding anybody to drink or consume anything, but they should have the healthiest options out there. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what you put forward because that fits with when trying to maximize nutrition, as you talked about. Um, you know, my follow-up que- or another question, not a follow-up, but what role does the department's Office of Chief Economist play in helping FNS make decisions related to policy and spending? I was, I was made privy to a USDA Office of Information Affairs response to a FOIA request that states, quote, the OCE relayed they were not asked to review any information related to the 2021 Thrifty Food Plan, end quote. Now, I think we can all agree that this update has a major economic impact, obviously. And uh, if this response is indeed true, can you tell me why the Office of Chief Economist would not be consulted? I, I can only wonder if there was uh, concern OCE would, OCE would discourage or disagree with your approach from an unbiased economic standpoint, especially when I perceive OCE as falling victim to calculated attempts at blocking economic analysis across a variety of policy issues. And if this response is not true, can you walk me through th- those consultations with the Office of Chief uh, Economist? Sure. Thank you, Ranking Member, for the question. Let me just reassure you, there were no shortage of economists involved with the Thrifty Food Plan reevaluation. But let me uh, refer that to Administrator Long in terms of the process. Sure, I'd be happy to, to share a little bit more about the process. Um, so we, we essentially, in, in the reevaluation of the Thrifty Food Plan, we essentially used the same uh, technical approach that has been used in, in prior years. Uh, we, it's a mathematical optimization model with a number of data inputs and constraints, uh, and I'm, I'd be happy to speak more about that. But in terms of the uh, other entities that were consulted, as the Deputy Undersecretary mentioned, internal to FNS, we certainly had a, a team that included economists, data science, and nutritionists. Uh, We had uh, formal input and review from uh, experts at the Economic Research Service, the uh, 
Agricultural Research Service uh, throughout the process, both as uh, the work was being done and they also conducted a review of the report itself. So uh, again, we certainly uh, had an extensive opportunity to bring the expertise of not only the Food and Nutrition Service, but USDA-wide to bear on this process. And that's fine, but I mean, this decision uh, tipped the nutrition title over a trillion dollars over 10 years, I would think that would warrant being elevated to the, uh, the consulting with the, the office of chief economist for USDA. And, and, um, and if so, why, I mean, why within these internal uh, communications uh, that were discovered under FOIA, I mean, I just, I, I just question why they were excluded. It, 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 seemed that something was missed in the process. I appreciate all the things that were done, but my question is what was not done, given the significant impact of the changes to the Thrifty Food Plan. Certainly, and um, Congressman, we'd be happy to get back to you on a more detailed description of the clearance process, uh, because at this point, we would need to double-check to see whether OCE did have the opportunity. Understood, and I appreciate that. Thank Thank you, you. Chairman. (laughs) Sure. And now, the gentleman from California, Mr. Costa, who is also the chair of the Subcommittee on Livestock and Foreign Agriculture. You're now recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, for your leadership and the uh, timeliness of um, the oversight necessary to set the table for literally and figuratively the reauthorization of the Farm Bill next year. Um, I... uh, I want to thank the department uh, for following through with the bipartisan uh, directive in the 2018 Farm Bill to review and update the Thrifty Food Plan. My gosh, it's been 45 years since it's been updated. Long overdue, and I suspect that will be the subject with our subcommittee chair uh, of jurisdiction on how we uh, update it and review, review it. I've always said food is a security, a national security issue, and from the uh, onset of the COVID-19, we certainly learned when we turned up our uh, f- food supply chain upside down how dramatic it was in terms of ec- impacting people's availability for food. It's, after all, America's safety net, right? I mean, you really think about it. It, it, it is so critical. Um, and so SNAP and the access to food uh, is critical for lives in America, but also to change lives. Um, And, you know, we all look at it locally. Uh, The chairman noted in in, in Georgia. Let me tell you, from the California 16th Congressional District, um, we have the irony of having one of the richest, largest agricultural areas in the entire country, but yet significant hunger from young and old alike to working poor. SNAP in my district to the local economy last year benefited 174,000 participants. Uh, 23% of my congressional district received SNAP, second highest in California. Uh, And its impact for food benefits was significant. Uh, $446 million in food benefits, $804 million in economic activity, and over 10,000 jobs. Uh, I want to put a question to you, uh, uh, Ms. Long, and again, thank you for your service. Uh, You're familiar with a pilot project that I worked on back in the 2014 reauthorization uh, that I think was successful in Fresno County's Bridge Academy. It was chosen as one of the SNAP employment and training uh, for a pilot program. Uh, 
Uh, by the end of 2017, the program had expanded to 14 academies in counties affecting 3,000 families to get people back on their feet. Uh, I want to continue to make this push. When we look at the reauthorization of the Farm Bill, and the chairman and I have done three reauthorizations, this will be our fourth, but as the ranking member noted, uh, the Title IV is usually the most contentious issue among the uh, Ag Committee. I think there are ways that we can work together on this and should. I think this pilot project is an example, but I think more funding is needed. Ms. Long, would you agree that such a, an example of this uh, effort can be accomplished and can be expanded to provide reform and opportunities for public-private partnerships? Congressman, if I may, I'll, I'll take that question. Um, I was very fortunate uh, some years ago to be invited by the incomparable Pete Weber to come out and visit uh, the Bridges Good Academy man. program in Fresno. And it was incredibly impressive. And many of its elements, uh, I think, uh, helped inform the pilots and uh, the, even some of the directives from uh, the 2018 Farm Bill to us on how to shift and change employment and training. Huge emphasis on case management, uh, making sure that families have some of the wraparound supports uh, that they need for uh, training and Those employment to be successful. Yes. And, um, and also really making sure that participants are matched to the right uh, program or training program for them, as well as the right employer and high-quality jobs. Big focus on ensuring that we place participants in high-quality jobs. Provide a jobs. living wage. That, yes, and that lead to opportunity. Well, and, and because SNAP is such a significant part of the Farm Bill uh, in terms of the baseline at 80 percent annually, I think it's critical that we focus. Uh, with my remaining time allowed, and I, I don't know if you, uh, Madam Secretary, would want to continue, I think the importance of reforming and focusing on nutrition on WIC and the school lunch and breakfast program uh, is critical. Uh, and during the pandemic, obviously, the food box area was critical. But we have with the supply chain also a perverse situation in which we have excess commodities uh, that are depressing prices. I'm wondering if you're looking on how we can use those excess commodities, either through the Commodity Credit Corporation or others, to help deal with the uh, impacts of, of that production oversupply. Well, uh, quickly, that's an entire initiative of the Secretary and our friends at the Marketing uh, Regulatory Program Mission Area. One example would be the local food procurement uh, uh, grant program that the Secretary has just launched, where we're going to be supporting state secretaries of agriculture to be to build their capacity to procure food locally in order to distribute through emergency food or school food. We think that'll help uh, support more resilient local food systems. Well, thank you. My time's expired, but uh, Mr. Chairman, we're going to have hunger issues not only in this country, but around the world. And there's an opportunity here for us to, to take good action. Thank you. Yes, you're right. Um, the gentleman from Arkansas, Mr. Crawford, well, is you. now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate that. Uh, since March 2020, consumers rapidly shifted to online grocery shopping. As you know, FNS was tasked with implementing the SNAP online purchasing pilot at a difficult time during this consumer shift and when retailers lined up to accept SNAP benefits online. However, I'm hearing from my independent grocers who still want to participate two years later that there continue to be significant challenges in getting approved while the largest national change have accepted SNAP online from the beginning. Congress attempted to address the bottlenecks and slow onboarding processes by uh, allocating $25 million in the American Rescue Plan in part for retailer technical assistance. My understanding is that none of this money has been distributed yet. 
What steps um, are being taken by FNS to help ensure that all retailers and consumers have access to this program? Well, thank you for that question, Mr. Congressman. And we really appreciate the support for online purchasing. We are up to uh, we're at a place where over 97 percent of SNAP households currently do have access to per online purchasing options. But as you note, there is certainly more to do, particularly with respect to smaller and specialty retailers. And we're, we're very grateful for the support that came through the American Rescue Plan Act. And I'm, I'm happy to report that uh, next month in May, we are going to be um, uh, putting out a request for a uh, uh, contract to develop a technical assistance center, which will be specifically designed to assist, uh, particularly, again, those smaller retailers in coming on board to the online platforms. And their goal will be really to provide the support that those retailers need to assess their technology needs and the business case to be able to successfully uh, uh, integrate into online purchasing in SNAP. And so that money, you're saying, will start to flow next month? The, we will be soliciting for the uh, for the uh, support for that uh, technical assistance center, uh, and we'd be happy to get you more information on the anticipated schedule for the actual uh, award and flowing of support. Okay, thank you. And just one other thing that I need to note, um, and I was actually talking to the ranking member, and this is an issue we've had conversations about in the past, and I got on your website and I noticed that this is the case, that... Um, Whole milk is not acceptable for school lunches, um, school breakfasts, and so we're concerned about the, the nutritional choices that our children are making, and yet we don't have that same concern as it applies to, say, for example, candy and energy drinks and things like that. Do you see the disconnect there? The, do you see the irony of that is that we're making judgments on nutrition value to our young people as it applies to whole milk but we're saying it's okay to go and buy a candy bar. Can you explain the disconnect there? Well, I would be happy to sort of to comment on the importance of, of milk. They, it, is, it serves, a, as you know, it serves a fundament, fundamental role not only in the schools but in all of the child nutrition program. Uh, we support, certainly support the service of milk. Milk through the WIC program. Mm -hmm. uh, th those programs are uh, fundamentally different than SNAP in that they are designed to provide, uh, to put a, a meal or a, a package of targeted foods on the table. Uh, and so we do believe that a, a differential approach is warranted. Okay, so, but you, as, as FNS, are making the decision that one nutrition program we can make those judgment calls, but another nutritional program we can't make those judgment calls. And also, are energy drinks included in SNAP? Are they acceptable for uh, SNAP expenditures? Uh, they are, Congressman. I, let me just jump in on this. I think the statute actually differentiates between the programs in terms of the science-based standards and the provision of food versus empowering. Would you support houses. changing that statute so that you could make a, a, a more consistent um, application across the agency? Well, I think we are making a consistent application in that we are promoting uh, for SNAP participants to purchase food aligned with the dietary guidelines and as in WIC and school. You're meals. promoting it, and I get that, and I appreciate that. But you're not mandating it because the statute doesn't allow for you to mandate that. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, but, it, but the statute does allow for you to mandate not allowing whole milk in schools for breakfast or lunch. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, so that's my point, is there is an inconsistency there, uh, statutory, that probably that this committee needs to address so that you're not in this position of, of 
you know, saying one thing, doing another. It's, it's, I, I'm not, I'm not laying this in your lap and saying this is your fault. You've, you've already pointed to the fact that this is a statutory issue, but it seems to me based on the exchange we're having today that the inconsistency can be addressed here in this committee. And that's something that you would be okay with. Sir, we bring the dietary guidelines to life in different ways for each program. It's certainly a, a, an important issue for the committees to look at, but I, we believe that uh, SNAP participants ought to have the flexibility to purchase like any other consumer in the so then it, store. Basically then, I'm running out of time, but then it's really not a statutory issue. It's more of a judgment call then. I think that's both. Uh, it is both the stat. We follow the statute, and the, the what we do in SNAP is the way we bring the dietary guidelines to life is uh, different than it uh, flows through the other programs. But I'm sorry, judgment informs statute. So maybe we can follow up on this this conversation. I Thank think you. We I want to promote that. better health. You bet. Thank you. You'll back. Thank you. Just as a reminder, members should direct questions to our witness, Deputy Undersecretary Dean. Thank you. I'm sorry, Mr. Chairman. I thought that's what I was doing. No problem. And now I recognize the gentleman from Massachusetts, Mr. McGovern, who is also the chair of the House Committee on Rules and is a national leader in our fight against hunger. He's now recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for this hearing, and um, Deputy Undersecretary Dean, thank you for, for being here today. Look, I want to begin first by saying thank you. Thank you to you. Thank you to Secretary Vilsack. Thank you to President Biden for stepping up uh, uh, during this pandemic and, um, and providing additional assistance so that hunger didn't spike uh, even more than it did uh, during this unprecedented time. Um, I am grateful that you were uh, in the positions that you were in, uh, because I quite frankly uh, can only imagine what might have happened um, if uh, it was the previous administration uh, that was in charge, uh, number one. Number two, um, I, I got to be honest with you, um, I, I get a little frustrated when I hear things like thrifty food plan scheme um, or uh, talk about how SNAP encourages idleness and, and disengagement, um, I find that, to be honest with you, if offensive. Uh, in terms of the thrifty food plan, uh, you were asked in the last farm bill, uh, when the Republicans control the House, uh, to, uh, to actually reevaluate the program so that to see what in fact uh, uh, was necessary to be able to afford a nutritious meal. You did that. Uh, and by the way, just to put everything in perspective, the average SNAP benefit uh, before uh, all of this, all of these uh, uh, these adjustments was about $1.40 per person per meal. Uh, to my colleagues uh, who think that's too much, you try living on that. Uh, and yet that's what uh, that's what the benefit was. Um, and, um, and in terms of being idle and disengaged uh, as a result of being on SNAP, you know, the, uh, the majority of people who are eligible to work who are on SNAP actually do work. Um, they're doing everything we expect them to do, uh, but they still earn so little that, they, that they're required for the benefit. And I just also want to say when people say, oh, you know, people, that some of us are drawing a line in the sand, do not touch SNAP. Look, everybody is, is open uh, to uh, constructive ideas on how to make any program better um, and more responsive. 
but uh, you know, the the thing that gives people like me pause is to my friends who are calling for touching SNAP or reforming SNAP. When you guys were calling the shots, uh, that meant uh, cutting the program by over twenty billion dollars, um, and actually throwing people off the benefit. Uh, yeah, no, I mean we're gonna. I, I mean, I would fight that tooth and nail. Um, I mean that's just in, in, inappropriate. Um, and um, you know, and you know, here we are. Um, you know, coming out of this pandemic, there's a world, there's worldwide inflation. Food costs are going up. Gas prices are going up. And again, I find it somewhat ironic, ironic that my colleagues who are calling for, you know, quote, touching SNAP have no problem with oil and gas companies gouging consumers or with the continued subsidization of that industry uh, at uh, a great benefit to oil executives. But anyway, that's another that's another story. We'll talk about that in another hearing. Um, but the bottom line is food prices are going up, um, you know, and um, and that directly relates to people's ability to um, to be able to afford nutritious food. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm we're all for encouraging people to make better choices. I don't think we have to micromanage their shopping. Um, there are programs in SNAP, uh, like the Double Bucks program, which actually incentivize people uh, to go to um, you know farmers markets and buy uh, fresh produce, and they get more of a, a bang for their buck uh, with their SNAP dolls if they do that. I think that's those are good programs. But basically, saying to somebody because you're struggling, because you're poor, you know we're going to tell you what you can buy and what you can't buy. Um, I mean, talk about uh, you know Washington um, kind of overstepping its its bounds and 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 micromanaging people's lives. I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, there are better ways to do this. And, Ms. and Deputy Secretary, I appreciate the fact that you talked about an all of government approach uh, to dealing with some of the challenges in nutrition, because quite frankly, this is not just a USDA issue. It's a Department of Education issue. It's a Health and Human Services issue. Um, it's a Department of Interior issue. I can go right down the list. Uh, we need a whole of government approach to hunger. We need a whole of government approach to nutrition. And I hope the administration will move in that direction. But let me just ask you, um, uh, you know, uh, the USDA's Economic Research Service put out a report in March predicting an up to 5% increase in food prices this year. And that's astounding. Um, it, 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 it's simply not affordable for many American families. And while I was pleased to see that SNAP spending rose in 2020 in response to the sharp economic downturn, it has been relatively flat since the summer of 2021 uh, uh, and has started falling as temporary benefit increases that took place during the pandemic are phasing out. So can you help us understand the important role of SNAP, that the, the, the SNAP played during the pandemic? And more importantly, can you give us a reality check about what it will mean for families, food costs, if benefit, if the benefit decreases again at the end of the public health emergency? Would you answer that very quickly? Uh, I'll do my best. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, 
Okay, so uh, uh, SNAP uh, during the pandemic did, uh, first of all, it's, it, it uh, increased when uh, we saw a significant uh, increase in need and uh, newly un unemployed folks qualifying for the program. So it was able to flex. Congress increased benefits uh, by providing emergency allotments, which actually allowed uh, benefits to go up by about monthly aggregate and across the country about 40%. So it was a, uh, really helped folks, to cushion folks through the, a dramatic uh, difficulty in securing food during a difficult time. And that increase has also helped to cushion uh, relative to the rising food inflation. And I, I think the president's uh, request of USDA to ensure that we had a minimum emergency allotment, a $95 per month per household amount, has uh, helped to um, <clears throat> deflect the impact of rising food costs on SNAP participants. And of course, uh, food hardship uh, is, would have been much, much higher had, had the program not been able to grow and expand with Congress's support. And I'll stop there, sir. Very fine. <laughs> and you can also provide additional information to uh, Jim in writing. Thank you. Uh, and now, <clears throat> the gentleman from Tennessee, Mr. Desjardins is now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Chairman Scott, and uh, thanks to our witnesses today. I, I do have some questions I want to ask before my time expires. Um, Undersecretary Dean, uh, just for some background, can you tell us currently how many uh, citizens are participating in the SNAP program? Uh, sir, I think it's approximately 43 million individuals, but I can get you the precise number. Okay, and what is our annual cost currently? Uh, I believe we estimate it to be, just give me one second, uh, this year we estimate it to be $127 billion in benefits. Okay, is that including, I think you indicated about a 21% food inflation in your opening statement? That, inc that includes the increased cost uh, associated with the thrifty reevaluation and emergency allotments. Okay, thank you. Uh, I guess I want to shift a little bit with concerns of, of what's happening at the southern border. And uh, do you know offhand what uh, number of non-citizens, uh, asylum seekers, immigrant, uh, non-citizen children are receiving SNAP benefits now? I do not, although non-citizens uh, face more, much more restrictive eligibility rules than citizens, sir. Well, they, they do, correct. Um, but if you're a... Uh, non-citizen child under 18, you receive benefits? Yes. If, if you are an asylum seeker under Section 208, uh, you receive benefits? That sounds correct. correct. And uh, there's, I mean, there's a list. There's about 15, 15 different categories. So there's uh, a quite a fair number of non-citizens, especially asylum, seek, asylum seekers. I think right now we have a 1.1 million backlog of asylum seekers awaiting judification. Uh, inside the U.S., uh, we're getting you know 300,000, I think, just this last year. Uh, with Title 42 uh, being lifted by the administration, which temporarily have been blocked, if, uh, if this abandonment does come to fruition, I was wondering what your concerns would be uh, to the strain on the program um, moving forward, and have you discussed the lifting of Title 42 with the White House? Uh, if so, uh, what is the plan to, you know, to assure that SNAP benefits will be preserved for the Americans that truly need it, and if not, why? 
Uh, sir, just to, um, I guess one thing I want to make sure you're aware of is that the program as an entitlement program can flex to need. So uh, I don't, I don't, we would not displace uh, one eligible individual for another. Um, and I'm just getting a, uh, okay. Um, uh, but in terms of your specific question, no, I haven't been involved with conversations with the White House on that issue. Okay. Well, we talked about veteran hunger and hunger in the United States, and it seems that uh, American citizens should be a priority. Uh, not that we want anyone to go hungry, but there are other costs associated besides SNAP with asylum seekers and people who come in in the form of uh, TANF, uh, you know, heating, education, and whatnot. And uh, according to the Center for Immigration Studies, 45% of non-citizen house households rely on SNAP as opposed to 21% of citizens' households. Can you walk me through this and why this is and what the department and FNS uh, is specifically doing to help lift these families from poverty and independence? And first of all, comment uh, on those numbers and percentages. Sure. Uh, first of all, I'm not familiar with that study, so I can't speak to its particulars, but we're happy to follow up. I want to just uh, restate again that uh, citizen, non-citizens uh, face much more restrictive eligibility rules than citizens. There is, for most adults, a five-year waiting bar and then other uh, other restrictions. And you're right that uh, refugees and other uh, immigrants uh, admitted on a humanitarian basis do have more immediate access to help. Right. And I would argue right now that most people crossing the southern border have learned that. They don't come here and say, they don't cross in the United States and say, you know, we're just coming here because we felt like it. They're saying we're seeking asylum. Uh, you know, they're, they're taught what to say. They're charged up to 4000 per person to be brought by uh, drug smugglers and cartels and, and people to get into the United States. And so they know what to say. So I guess what I'd like to get from you is an actual number. You know, we know uh, what it costs for SNAP per year. We know how many uh, Americans, uh, well, I think we know how many Americans. You said 41 million, but we don't know how many of those are actual Americans. Does that number include the asylum seekers and children of non-citizens? It would include eligible non-citizens, yes. Okay, so I guess what we need to know is that, you know, first of all, we're taking care of Americans first. We have programs to assist uh, people, whether they're in other countries, uh, in terms of hunger, and I think that's important. The U.S. should lead on that, and I'm really proud of the SNAP program that we have in order to take care of the people who are hungry in the U.S. I just want to prepare. This line of question is prepare for the Farm Bill so we know what to expect and, and how to best take care of those in need. So I thank you for your testimony, and any information you get to me on writing on those numbers would be greatly appreciated. And I'm happy to do that, sir. Thank you. <clears throat> and now the gentlewoman from Connecticut, Miss Hayes who is also the chair of the Subcommittee on Nutrition, Oversight, and Department Operations, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I'm really excited that we're having this hearing because, again, this program is incredibly important. I also hope uh, that, uh, Deputy Undersecretary Administrator Long, that you appreciate the fullness of the immigrant experience, and it is not a single issue. It is much more complex, and it is something that we have a responsibility to look at uh, completely and thoroughly. SNAP is one of the most effective federal programs also for bolstering local economies. Every $1 in SNAP generates $1.50 to economic activity, and studies have shown that SNAP was responsible for nearly 200,000 U.S. industry jobs and 45,000 jobs in supporting industries like agriculture, manufacturing, and transportation. In my state of Connecticut, 77,000 people are lifted out of poverty 
every year by SNAP. That number includes 31,000 people. It is not a, a poverty-inducing endemic program. It is something that I have seen families use to stabilize themselves until they can enter the fullness of society. Um, and I have a lot to say on that. However, the program is still not as accessible as it should be, especially for veterans, as I mentioned before. Um, I, I appreciate uh, the gentleman from Nebraska's comments about raising the pay um, of our service members, but we have not done that yet. And in my area of jurisdiction, which is the programs like this, there is more that we can do. And I'm hearing from veterans um, just about the impact when they return, when they, their discipline rating is not enough to qualify for benefits. And we are falling well short of what we can do. Um, my question is, um, would you have any recommendations as we go into the next uh, farm bill on how we can make sure, especially for this targeted group, that we are doing a better job? Um, well, thank you for the question. I agree. Uh, the rates of food insecurity amongst our veterans is incredibly troubling and merits uh, uh, bold action. Uh, so we, um, we, and just to speak to that, we, uh, uh, the way we've approached it is first trying to get information to veterans themselves through the Department of Veterans Affairs Welcome Home Kits. We also work with uh, uh, those who work with veterans, so training uh, nurses and other professionals at the VA to make them aware of our programs and how to screen for whether someone is eligible. And then, of course, we've been encouraging our states to do direct outreach to veterans. So those are things within our toolkit today. Um, uh, I'm always a little, I don't want to be, be mindful of making policy at the yes. table uh, at a, in a markup, but I think the kinds of things that you have in your bill are uh, certainly worthy of exploration. Is the uh, disability rating uh, in the statute too high and uh, close out those who um, are disabled, uh, are severely disabled, but not yet at that 100% rating. I think we also have uh, a, a relationship with the Social Security Administration that might be one we could explore with a VA, where uh, Social Security uh, makes SNAP, actually ha ta takes the responsibility of taking SNAP applications uh, for um, low-income seniors and individuals with disabilities, and we reimburse them for that uh, activity. That might be something we could look at. And of course, we would certainly love to explore the idea of targeted outreach programs uh, to veterans, which would require funding, but we'd um, love to talk to you about. Well, thank you. Um, I just appreciate uh, your understanding of the magnitude of this problem and that we really have to make some intentional changes. And I don't want you to make policy uh, <laughs> at the table because your work is way too important and requires a lot more thought. Um, I'm going to ask a two-part qu well, question and then just an observation and then let you run out the time because five minutes is not enough time to have this kind of a conversation. I know that in 2004, we switch from food coupons to the electronic benefits program. Um, I know that, uh, can you just please dis provide us with any updates on the status of implementation of the mobile technology demonstration projects? And just one thing, you probably won't even have time to answer this, but I, I also wanted to share something that I'm hearing from grocers in my district that I just think that we should take a better look at is rolling benefits. I've heard from many grocers that at the beginning of the month, there's this surge of people who all get their benefits at the same time. And I just think that to preserve the dignity of people, um, you know, the first five days of the month, everybody's shopping. Uh, they're running out of uh, the stores, can't keep the, the shelves stocked enough because of the surge. And then the rest of the month, 
you know, as benefits begin to dwindle, I, I just feel like there shouldn't be this idea that on the first of the month, everyone who's receiving benefits is shopping because many of these people are also working or are, you know, a very different narrative than people associate with, with benefit participants. My time has expired, but uh, if you could just share with me just the updates on the mobile demonstration programs and just think of that for your consideration as we move forward, um, because it's something that I'm hearing over and over about the way benefits are distributed. Mr. Chair, I apologize for going over. I yield back. Thank you. And uh, please follow up with the chair lady in writing so she can get some specific responses uh, from you, Undersecretary. Thank you. And now, the gentleman from Illinois, Mr. Davis, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chair uh, and Ranking Member Thompson. We've had a busy week in this committee, and I appreciate that. I'm looking forward to discussing the SNAP issues today. Deputy Undersecretary Dean, in your testimony, you talk about how SNAP is a powerful tool to address hunger and hardship. Thank you. And yet the Biden administration is pushing an agenda of poverty by continuing to incentivize people to stay home, not seek employment, not utilize the employment and training programs that exist through the USDA. At a time when there's a business on every corner that really needs employees. I mentioned in the committee's cattle hearing yesterday, uh, but it's worth repeating. We are currently seeing the largest increase in food prices in 40 years. I keep bringing up inflation in this committee because it's warranted. These benefits have always been intended to be a tool to get people back on their feet from a hard time, not an economic incentive to stay on the sidelines. To that end, the department conducted its annual cost of living adjustment just last year and then increased benefits by way of an accelerated, debatable, thrifty food plan update. I believe there is still a focus from this administration and FNS to increase SNAP benefit allotments and expand eligibility even further. Just yesterday, Democrats blamed meat packers for high prices, even when producers said inflation related to wasteful pandemic spending, supply chain issues, and a lack of workers was the cause for these increased input costs and subsequent food prices. Seems obvious that the department wouldn't be able to quantify mere rumors of price gouging when adjusting these prices. So why does the administration insist on finger pointing when it comes to the root cause of high food prices? It's worth repeating that there are currently 11 million work-ready adults certified by their state workforce agencies who are receiving SNAP benefits but could start working immediately to fill the over 11 million open jobs in the United States. Getting these individuals to work could ease supply chain issues immediately, and that would, do, that would be done by increasing domestic production and productivity. Until this administration pushes to do a better job of matching people with these jobs, and disincentivizing, disincentivizing the COVID culture of not working, these problems that we're talking about today are only going to persist. So, Mr. Chair, I, I want to say thank you for allowing me the time to make these remarks today. I don't have any further questions of the witness, and I'll yield back the balance of my time. Thank you. And now the gentlewoman from Virginia, Ms. Spanberger, who is also the chair of the Subcommittee on Conservation and Forestry, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Scott, and thank you, Ms. Dean and Ms. Long, for taking the time to be with us here today. I really appreciate the opportunity to discuss SNAP uh, and to reflect on the program's efficacy 
since the Farm Bill was last enacted in 2018. And at that point in time, no one could have predicted the pandemic and just how vital these programs would be to provide food for families, children, veterans, and those with disabilities across our country. In fact, Congress demonstrated the importance of the SNAP program when under the Trump administration, we increased the maximum monthly SNAP benefit by 15%. Uh, that's because we know that SNAP helps families afford food while also boosting economic recovery. Uh, for example, in spite of the pandemic, a USDA report found that U.S. household insecurity, food insecurity, remained unchanged in 2020. Another report from the last economic recession found that SNAP benefits generated an annual increase in rural output of $46.8 billion while sustaining the employment of a quarter million rural workers. As the data suggests, SNAP and congressional actions uh, to enhance SNAP uh, both prevented hunger and strengthened local economies in the communities we represent across this community. And so as such, I'm really appreciative of USDA's work over the past several years to implement the 2018 Farm Bill, contend with the challenges post uh, by the pandemic. And certainly in your testimony, you mentioned a few areas that USDA is exploring to reduce the burden on families trying to access SNAP benefits. And as we turn towards the 2023 Farm Bill, I'm especially interested in examining the ways that we can improve flexibilities for those who rely on SNAP to put food on the table. Um, and I'm particularly interested in discussion related to uh, the exclusion of hot foods from SNAP. And so under current policy. Uh, a parent on their way home uh, currently cannot pick up uh, from a from the local grocery store with their SNAP benefits uh, a hot rotisserie chicken for their children's dinner. And just to speak to that, uh, rotisserie chickens are a uh, 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 such an important sort of staple in my family because you pick up the chicken, you eat it hot, you have the leftovers, you make chicken salad, you boil the bones and make bone broth that you then use for soup down the, you know, a couple weeks later, a couple days later, stick it in the freezer. Um, it's an economical way to not only feed your family that night with hot food, but it's an important way uh, for people to make those dollars. Certainly we do it in my home, uh, but to make those dollars work harder and feed better. Um, so I, I wanna speak a little bit, Congressman Rush has a bipartisan bill, HR 6338, that I'm a sponsor of, that would repeal this exclusion. And so I'm, I'm curious if you could provide your thoughts on this current policy and discuss the potential impact it could have uh, if we were to repeal this exclusion, because I think certainly all of us wanna make sure that these SNAP dollars are meant uh, are going towards nutritious, good food uh, that keep people healthy, keep people fed. Uh, so um, could you please speak to that uh, that question and that legislation? Uh, thanks so much, Congresswoman. I am a mom of three, so I totally uh, appreciate the, uh, the value of being able to pick up uh, a rotisserie chicken uh, as you're preparing a nutritious meal on the fly for your kids. Um, the, the hot foods uh, prohibition is in the statute, and so that is something that Congress would have to take a look at, and uh, so glad that you have a bill on it. Um, I think the issue is grocery stores look quite a bit different today than they did uh, decades ago when those rules were written. And so one question I think we will have, uh, because we have another, uh, another part of the law that allows restaurants to uh, uh, part take, take benefits for uh, some specific households, um, senior disabled homeless, 
is what does this mean with if we want if we allow hot foods how does that uh, translate over into restaurant involvement in the program and I think that's going to be critical for the committee to consider uh, and I'm really not prejudging the issue but there are over a million restaurants um, is that what will be their role and how will shifting that uh, policy uh, potentially um, shift the contours of who is a retailer and how they participate. So that's, I think that's the issue that, that, that complex operational issue we want to work through with you. But um, I think we're all fans of rotisserie chicken as a, as a, <laughs> as a good solution for dinner at home. Well, and, and thank you, Ms. Dean. I really appreciate that response. And certainly I appreciate the leadership of Congressman Rush on, on this issue. And I thank you for some input on that in terms of how we can make sure that the, the bill is the strongest possible bill that it can be and that it is focused on kind of efficient, nutritious, right. uh, good food for our families, uh, and particularly uh, with with uh, hot food that can, you know, makes for great leftovers, uh, such as such as rotisserie chicken. Uh, I will we'll be following up on that. But thank you for your guidance and uh, your feedback. And Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Yes. And now uh, the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Austin Scott, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, many of the questions that I have, have have been answered. But I again want to reiterate what uh, Ranking Member Thompson said about the need to have an honest discussion about this title instead of having Democrats simply say, we're not doing anything with the title, it's untouchable. Uh, I, I don't have a problem, as um, my colleague from the other side of the aisle was just discussing, I don't have a problem with uh, a rotisserie chicken being uh, available as, as part of the program. I do have a problem with uh, a Happy Meal or a drive-through uh, being part of it. And, and I don't understand why we can't have an honest discussion about uh, obesity with, with our youth and, and, and what is avail available to be purchased with, uh, with SNAP products. And so I guess my question to uh, the Undersecretary is why can't we move and wouldn't it be better for people's health if we move to a system similar to WIC where you had to buy products that actually had a nutritional value to them instead of soda pop and potato chips? So Secretary Dean, can you tell me why the Biden administration would oppose? Um, uh, con well, Congressman, thank you for the question. I think um, what we're, I'm hearing from you and so many members of the committee is a deep concern about uh, improving overall diet health, uh, improving our risk of diet-related disease, and in particular, the risk to children. So we share that concern uh, the, and why the Secretary has launched uh, his Nutrition Security Initiative, which is about improving uh, access to healthy, affordable food for all Americans, right, with the goal of improving diet health and their long-term health. Um, and we... I think we have to begin with making sure that Americans are aware of what a healthy diet is, that they know how to purchase it, they know how to prepare it, and then we're sure that they are eating it. Uh, and it, you know, I guess I would I'd say that's we, we want to start from an affirming place. We want to start from making from believing that everybody wants the best from their kids because they do. 
but, the, but that just isn't within reach for a lot of families. And I think uh, that's just going to be a much stronger place to go. And so we'd really love to see uh, and plan to increase our work around MyPlate. We want to uh, seek more public-private partnerships to promote healthy food and healthy eating. Uh, we want to partner with our grocers, with our healthcare professionals, with nutritionists around the country. There's just a lot more we can do. And our, our efforts shouldn't just be limited to our program participants. This is a whole of country problem and it needs a whole of government, whole of country solution. Well, well ma'am, just, just giving more money to, to people and allowing them to buy, uh, you know, 200 calorie sodas and a 12 ounce can and potato chips is, is simply making the problem worse. And, and we have a system out there in, in the WIC program where people are limited to uh, products that are actually nutritious. Now, now maybe that program, uh, maybe the SNAP program doesn't need to be identical to the WIC program. Maybe it needs to include things like uh, a rotisserie chicken, for example, that the that my predecessor just mentioned, but with barcodes and other things today, it, it, it would be pretty easy if the administration was willing to actually make it a nutrition program in, instead of um, something that people can buy, uh, again, soda pop and potato chips with. So uh, one, one other question that I have, uh, Secretary, is, the average balances that are showing up on um, the SNAP cards right now. I have had people at grocery stores tell me that people line up and, and offer to purchase other people's groceries for cash for, for a certain percentage of it. So you buy $100 worth of groceries, uh, I'll put it on my SNAP card and you give me $50 for it outside. What is the administration doing about that type of fraud? Uh, Congressman, uh, thanks for the question. Uh, first of all, that kind of trafficking is uh, violates federal law, and uh, it's really critical that when folks see it, that they report it. We want to make sure that uh, we and our state fraud investigators are uh, following up and taking action. Has, has the Biden administration prosecuted a single case of that fraud? Have they prosecuted a single case of food stamp fraud or SNAP fraud? I don't, you mean in terms of the judiciary or the, through administrator? We can absolutely follow up with you, but yes, we have a rigorous approach to addressing fraud. I, I would appreciate the information on how many cases have been brought sure. for, for fraud. Okay. Thank you, ma'am. And uh, <clears throat> Deputy Secretary, please follow up with uh, Congressman Scott's inquiry in writing. Thank you. And now the gentlewoman from New Hampshire, Ms. Custer is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the Undersecretary Dean and Administrator Long for being with us for this important hearing today. SNAP has a proven track record of helping to mitigate hunger in New Hampshire and save thousands of families from slipping into the depths of poverty. Never was this safety net more necessary than during the COVID-19 pandemic. Not only was access to SNAP critical for so many Granite Staters and their families during the heights of the pandemic, but the waivers and flexibilities granted to the SNAP program by Congress and implemented by the USDA made a tremendous difference as well. A perfect example is flexibility around how to apply to SNAP. 
As you may know, I've introduced the Streamlining Assistance Paperwork Act that would make permanent SNAP application flexibility granted by USDA in 2022 under the parameters of the Families First COVID package. This flexibility allows states to process SNAP applications without expensive telephonic signature technology and saves applicants from having to make the trip to a state office to fill out the paperwork. That's critical for a rural state like mine, especially for people who can't easily travel or get time off from work. Not only does this flexibility cut a lot of unnecessary red tape, it still holds applicants to the same standards as if they'd come into the office to sign the paperwork, thereby maintaining the SNAP program's integrity. Administrator Long, do you believe the flexibilities extended to SNAP during the pandemic have been valuable and should be made permanent in the Farm Bill? Well, thank you for the question, Congresswoman. We, we certainly uh, believe that we had the opportunity to learn a lot uh, about how the program can operate better through the kind of natural experiment of the pandemic. Uh, we are currently in the process, actually, of uh, doing some fairly intensive conversations with our state agencies that administer the program uh, to help them prepare uh, for the return to normal operations. That also provides us the opportunity to receive feedback about how they have experienced some of those flexibilities and have a conversation about what could be useful going forward. Certainly, uh, the flexibility around the telephonic signature is something that we have heard um, from quite a few states. They have found extremely useful and valuable, and we are taking a look internally at putting together our thoughts on how we might uh, work with Congress to move forward uh, to make that particular flexibility available. And we are happy to have a, to continue the conversation with you about other ways in which we might take the learnings uh, of the last several years as Congress begins its work on the Farm Bill. Excellent, thank you. I also wanted to ask about the federal SNAP emergency allotment, a modest but valuable boost in funds for SNAP participants that was also implemented under the auspices of the Families First Bill. We know this allotment will expire and states still utilizing it as soon as the federal public health emergency ends. And even though much work is being done to make sure families are made aware of this, I fear it will have a jarring effect, particularly as food prices remain high. Has there been consultation within USDA or the administration more broadly about how we could gradually reduce this allotment instead of having a hard stop? And would you recommend that Congress take action to reduce the allotment along those lines once the health emergency has been lifted? Uh, thank you, Congresswoman. We share your concern about uh, the basically when the allotments end, it will be uh, disruptive and confusing for a lot of families and will uh, require many to rejig it, rejigger and think through their monthly budgets. Of course, they were intended to be temporary uh, and to end. And so you're asking a really good question about is there a better way to taper them off um, that would be less, perhaps less jarring for households. We don't have the authority to do that within the administration. Um, certainly would be happy to talk with you and others in Congress about whether you have thoughts about ways to stair-step it down so that uh, families don't experience such an abrupt change. Great. Thank you. And we'll follow up on that as well. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I yield back. And thank you. The gentleman from California, Mr. LaMaffa, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I want to follow up on something that um, Mr. Crawford was uh, speaking about, Undersecretary, and uh, I wanted to uh, ascertain 
the jurisdiction standpoint here that um, within within the, the agencies here on uh, interpreting the statute as far as coming drawing back down to this healthy foods issues versus things that I think uh, almost everybody unanimously would agree is that should we be looking at milk versus energy drink or soda pop or things like that. And so um, it sounded like there was inconsistency in, in the thought or even the response on the ability to interpret the statute is available in the different branches of the agencies involved. Um, I'm very sorry, Congressman, if I left that impression. The definition of food is in the statute, uh, the, the definition of, food, of what's an allowable food for SNAP. So we don't have the opportunity to, um, to uh, uh, shift that, I guess I would say, outside of, um, I suppose, a robust research demonstration project. But uh, as a general matter, the statute sets the definition. Uh, applies to SNAP, but not to WIC, not to Thrifty Foods, the other... The other they, programs... They, they seem to have... You, oh. it's, it sounded like you have the ability to decide that within those others the same as you would within SNAP. Thank you. Um, no, the other programs, uh, and you should jump in here, uh, Cindy is a real expert in school meals uh, and WIC. The, the other programs set a prescription package that needs to be informed by the dietary guidelines. So in WIC, it's a supplemental package. Uh, that's informed by where uh, participants in that program say have uh, overall nutrient deficits where we need to supplement. Uh, and then in school meals, it's about putting a meal on a plate that aligns with a dietary guideline. So we update them in those uh, with those in the case of those particular food packages um, based on the dietary guidelines. So I'm sorry if I'm not being clear. Okay. I'm, it's Maybe it's pretty muddled, but Everybody understands what the intent is here, right? Is we want American-grown food that's nutritious from our ag sector or you know the processing that comes from that to be on the plates of people that are receiving taxpayer-driven uh, assistance, not things that are not uh, think, thought uh, you know commonsensibly as as healthy, right? Healthy foods, and not that they're bad foods; they're just not targeted towards driving health, because we get it on the other end, too. You know, you're, if people are purchasing things that are not positive for their health, then we're going to pick it up on the healthcare system on the other end if they're eating things that cause obesity, et cetera, you know, diabetes, what have you. So what what is so difficult about the jump here within the uh, the agency here to say we we don't want to have the eligibility for soda pop and candy bars and all that sort of thing potato chips and fast food to be part of the program why can't we define it more straight up and you have that ability to do so from what we're looking at within your jurisdiction we have the ability in WIC and school meals to ensure that uh, those programs align with the dietary guidelines. In SNAP, Congress sets the definition of food, sir. So uh, it is Congress who decides how what benefits can be used for in the stores. But I guess the one the one reframe I would put on um, your I completely agree with you that we're, we're all, it sounds as if we're all here with the goal of improving uh, what Americans are eating for the goal of improved health outcomes. But for us, it, it is 
This problem is not limited to those who participate in federal nutrition programs. This is a universal problem uh, for most of the country. Nearly, uh, almost no American but, eats. But those are private decisions. The, you know, when the, the, where the rubber meets the road is that we are expending tax dollars and would have a say. And, and, and a lot of other things. There's strings attached with tax dollars on building roads and everything else. And so why would we be uh, going down a path that is not helpful to the health of those folks? You know, and people, normal people are still wondering this. Why are you guys doing that? Every farm bill, you have the discussion. It runs into a big political problem. I was on a, I was on a national broadcast this morning. A lady from, I think, Ohio was wondering, why do you guys still have this stuff in these uh, programs? And so you're saying you do not have the jurisdiction to interpret that, that as far as SNAP goes, that Congress has to change the law itself. Is that, that is correct? correct. Okay. All right. Thank you. I'll right. back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And now the gentleman from Arizona, Mr. O'Halloran, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and ranking member uh, for organizing this important hearing. I also want to thank uh, the witnesses for their participation today. Uh, food insecurity is a devastating issue for our tribal communities. Roughly one in four tribal families experience food insecurity in comparison to one in eight Americans overall. Now, before the pandemic, Apache County, a rural county in my district, had a food insecurity rate of 20%. This county is home to several Native American tribes, including some of the Navajo Nation. During the pandemic, nearly half of Native Americans nationwide reported experiencing food insecurity. The questions I have are this. The 2018 Farm Bill authorized USDA to conduct demonstration projects to enter into self-determination contracts with tribal organizations to purchase agricultural commodities under the food distribution program for Indian reservations. Uh, Ms. Dean, are, are the lessons USDA has learned from the new demonstration projects in Indian country that might be applicable uh, to nutritional programs like SNAP so that we can better understand and address uh, the food insecurity uh, on tribal lands. Uh, thank you, Congressman. We're really delighted and thrilled with the self-determination projects and thank Congress. We're going to be able to extend them for the current grantees and offer new, uh, new uh, tribes the ability to come into the program. Um, I think I think part of the lessons that we've learned is um, a new effort to, and a new conversation with tribes about self-governance and self-determination. And so we're seeking to do that with respect to SNAP and some of the uh, and also the components of SNAP: employment and training, nutrition education, uh, so that we uh, can make sure that we're in a better place for a conversation with you all about how to. Um, incorporate self-governance, self-determination into those aspects of the act, if that's of interest to Congress. Uh, thank you. Uh, additionally, uh, SNAP is also essentially uh, essential to our rural communities. Following the Great Recession, SNAP benefits increased rural employment by 279,000 jobs and increased rural economic output uh, by uh, $48.8 billion. However, accessing these benefits often presents major issues for those in rural communities. How can we strengthen and improve rural grocery stores and retailers to ensure access to healthy food in rural and tribal communities? 
Well, the, uh, our rural development mission area is t definitely uh, taking a look at the Healthy Food Financing Initiative and how it can help uh, support and attract uh, uh, grocers to rural areas. We've got the online shopping um, uh, uh, option that's now available, and as Administrator Long uh, pointed out, we're seeking to uh, dramatically increase the number of stores, particularly small, um, individually owned uh, grocers I, with, who probably are very frequently in rural areas, uh, seeing if we can bring them onto the program. So those would be two examples. But we, we have to expand our reach into rural America. And as I'm sure you know, this is a critical priority of the secretaries is to make sure that USDA is, uh, and across the whole of government, more fundamentally serving those communities and thinking creatively and across mission areas so that we can uh, fully leverage the support in those communities to see them um, revitalize and thrive. And the quality of food in, in rural, my district, uh, which is the size of Illinois, uh, is uh, it, it just is not uh, the quality that you can get in other places uh, within urban areas throughout the state. So, and the distance between stores is terrible. Um, each tribal government is different though. Each, just like each state, what is the USDA Food and Nutrition Service doing to work closely with each tribe to help them tailor programs like the food distribution program for Indian reservations and SNAP to the needs of those tribes? I'd say two things quickly. One is regular consultation. Uh, we do um, uh, about four consultations a year, uh, focused on FDPIR, but open to other topics. And we're, we do a lot more collaborate. We do also collaboration on our other programs where we make a rule change there. We want to make sure we confer and consult with tribes. Uh, but in addition, um, we are, need to strengthen our own capacity to work with tribes. So our, our budget that the secretary is uh, testifying on, I think just down the Hill um, today is would include uh, several additional positions uh, to bolster our ability to support tribes and their needs uh, as they they um, seek to leverage our federal food programs. Thank you very much. I'd like to sit in on one of those programs sometimes. <laughs> and Mr. Chairman, I yield. Thank you, and thank you, uh, Congressman O'Halloran, for bringing up the rural and tribal communities. They are facing some tremendous challenges. Thank you, uh, Congressman O'Halloran. And now the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Allen, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can, Mr. Allen. Good. Thank you. Uh, Deputy Undersecretary Dave, thank you for joining us today for this important hearing as we review the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Uh, obviously, uh, we have a health crisis in our country along with, uh, uh, along with the, the uh, food supply issues and, and obviously the cost of uh, meat and other things. Uh, and I hear about this, uh, you know, daily. In fact, as my doctor tells me, you are what you eat and, uh, in it, in what you eat has, uh, and your habits and that sort of thing has, uh, tremendous implications on, on your health. And obviously we want to be, uh, uh promote good health in, in this country. Uh, currently, our, our country continues to have a sluggish rebound from the 
unprecedented stay-at-home policy measures enacted over the past two years. We have nearly five million childless, non-working adults that are not that that are not employed currently. Uh, these are folks with uh, that have no children, and uh, they're 18 to 49 years old. At the same time, we have over 11 million job openings throughout the country, and of course, we have runaway inflation uh, uh, because of uh, su- supply demand issues caused by a workforce shortage. Uh, the SNAP program was designed to work as a primer to get through, uh, get people through uh, difficult times, and uh, and it is it has been successful doing that. But uh, and it was meant primarily for our children and certainly uh, our elderly uh, folks. But uh, but now it's become a generational program. In other words, we've had generations that continue to be on welfare. Uh, we need to reform this program so that it serves its original intended purposes. Uh, Under Secretary Dean, uh, from your standpoint. I mean, do you look at, um, and, I mean, is USDA concerned about the health of the American people? Yes, sir, absolutely. So what measures has USDA taken as far as the food security issues to promote good health to, uh, to the American people? So, well, sir, thank you for the question. Uh, Secretary Vilsack recently uh, at Columbia University just launched uh, what we're calling our Nutrition Security Initiative, and it's got four core pillars. One is ensuring that all of our nutrition programs have offer meaningful support, meaning sufficient support to secure a healthy diet, as well as that they are science or uh, nutrition science informed. Uh, second is that we want to be promoting uh, health access to healthy foods and healthy foods uh, overall. Third is collaborative action, work that we can do with uh, nutritionists, educators, health professionals across the country. And then fourth, making sure that all of our work in this space is driven from an equity lens, given that food insecurity and health disparities are not problems that are equally born and that uh, people of color in particular experience those problems at much higher rates. And so we want to be mindful of what caused those disparities. so, So we're saying that the current farm bill is untouchable. So how are we going to, I mean, uh, and this has to be done legislatively, as I understand. So how are we going to fix the problem if we don't do it legislatively? Sir, I'm not saying the current farm bill is untouchable. That's obviously, that's Congress's purview. But I think what we want to do is a stronger nutrition issue. Our Democratic colleagues are saying that uh, this program is untouchable. But but at any rate, I am just about out of time. One one other thing. that we, we need to get to the root of the problem on. And, and I don't understand this, but, you know, we hear time and time again that one out of five children go to bed hungry in this country every night. And uh, I don't know about the rest of the country, but in the 12th District of Georgia, during the pandemic, our children got breakfast, lunch, and a snack each day through, federal, uh, through our school nutrition programs. We made that happen. How is it possible that one in five children go to bed hungry at night, uh, and why? Have, 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 have y'all investigated this problem? I don't have enough time to get back to you uh, uh, in, given the, yeah, the time, but I'm happy to follow up with you, sir. 
Yeah, yeah, that, that would be great. And Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you. And now the gentleman from California, Mr. Garberhall, is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Undersecretary Dean, uh, for your testimony, and thank you, Ms. Long, for being here today. Uh, I must say, as somebody who, when I was young and my family uh, had to uh, get on SNAP, it's uh, sometimes disconcerting to hear some of the uh, over-obsession with uh, real specifics, how we want to uh, monitor and the guidelines and the specific nutrition of the subsidies provided to families that are food insecure. Uh, certainly, I think we all have the goal to promote good nutrition and make sure that the dollars are spent as such and, and, and education to educate more families as to what's more nutrition versus not nutritious. And I know we do that with a lot of the subsidies and, and, and support we give our our food banks, they go a long way to now really focus on nutrition. I just wish some of my colleagues, uh, my good friends on the other side of the aisle were as dogged about the subsidies we give certain industries, uh, oil companies and, and what have you about how those dollars are being spent. But usually it's those that uh, have the least among us who uh, don't have a voice that oftentimes are, were over obsessed with how they spend every dollar. We want government intrusion in it, that candy bar that they buy that maybe the rest of America buys as well. Uh, nutrition uh, and healthy eating is a pandemic, I, I mean, a, a, a challenge that we all have throughout the country, uh, irrespective of, of class. Certainly it's uh, sometimes more pervasive uh, with those who have less means, but certainly I, I do hope that we don't get over obsessed with uh, how we are helping the poor and then being very directive how they should spend every single dollar. Uh, I believe it is the basic function of government to ensure people in this country are not going hungry. SNAP is essential to ensuring that individuals are able to have access to food. Congress acted multiple times to provide flexibility to SNAP and bolster the benefits during the course of the pandemic. However, at the end of the public health emergency, People receiving SNAP will see substantial decreases to their benefits. Undersecretary Dean, is the USDA putting in place any plans to be ready for this decrease in benefits and the hunger cliff following this decrease? Uh, thank you, Congressman, for your question and your comments. Uh, we, um, we are concerned that when the emergency allotments end, it'll be an abrupt change for millions of households. Uh, at this point, we are issuing about $3 billion a month in emergency allotments. So it will be a dramatic shift if the public health emergency were to end uh, in terms of, and to be clear, the public health emergency ending is a signal of a good thing in our country. Uh, but just thinking about the, um, the impact on households and monthly budgets could be very difficult. Uh, so we were working with states to make sure that they are uh, that they've got good communications available for households. We want to make sure also that uh, when households see their benefits change, probably many of them are going to be calling states, right, which will. Uh, um, uh, clog up phone lines and could lead to disruption and cause folks who are eligible to lose benefits. So planning for this pivot is critically important. 
Uh, and the Secretary also has made investments in the emergency food system by uh, ensuring that we had a, a significant additional resources available uh, through TFAP and complementary programs to shore up emergency food. I will say one of the worries we have looking ahead is what the impact will be for school food. That's an area where we know we will lose our uh, expanded waiver authority on uh, June 30th. Um, we've called upon Congress to see if there's a way to extend it uh, because we're that's a system we're not as confident uh, can make the pivot um, uh, to ensuring that they're continuing to provide uh, meals to children during a period of higher food prices and uh, labor difficulties. So we, we really hope that we can work with you all on uh, giving us some additional flexibility to help there. Thank you. We have seen benefits associated with the expansion of online services across several sectors, including the online acceptance of SNAP benefits. This flexibility can be particularly useful if an individual does not have access to transportation or is caring for children at home. Under Secretary Dean, what are some of the successes of online services you have seen and what are some of the challenges people have ran into and how can we improve these services so that they benefit more individuals, especially in rural areas? Well, the uh, how to capture all of the benefits of online. Uh, I think a great example is just managing your benefits. Uh, if you, many states offer an on um, an account management tool similar to what you might have with banking or um, your credit card management, and you can go in and see. Uh, when you've applied, what uh, follow-up uh, data or, or pieces of paper are necessary, um, what's, the, what's your balance. Uh, so just giving uh, households more transparency and agency over the process as opposed to it being some sort of bureaucratic black box where uh, they feel um, uh, powerless, right, for the uh, understanding what's happening with the processes. So that's a wonderful thing. Also, the ability to quickly, uh, more more quickly adapt the forms and the questions uh, to be responsive to what households may or may not understand. The challenge is, of course, that so many uh, struggling Americans don't have access to broadband at home. Uh, they may not have a mobile phone. Uh, uh, and, and so if we shift all service to online, we would, of course, uh, exclude many, many vulnerable individuals. So online services, have to, it has to be a both end to, to uh, also in-person service. Uh, we've got to meet people where they're at. And uh, we're certainly working to expand broadband to the whole of the country. Uh, but until we do, uh, and, and to equip everyone with devices, but until we do, uh, we've, we, it's got to be a both end. The gentleman from Nebraska, Mr. Megan, is recognized now for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair. And appreciate your testimony today. Uh, Deputy Undersecretary Dean, what is the agency doing to emphasize employment and training, especially when businesses are clamoring for employees? Now, in Nebraska, we have a record low unemployment, but half the businesses are looking for employees. So we have a, you know, a, a challenge there. Uh, do you have a staff on the ground guiding states and their quests to build for higher quality programs? Thank you. Well, thank you. And the 2018 Farm Bill um, uh, made quite a, a number of changes in direction in employment and training, in particular emphasizing better, uh, higher quality employment and training over sort of larger scale, lower quality services. So a big part of what we've been doing is been implementing those changes. Uh, uh, new regulations, um, lots of training on the ground for states to make sure that they are aware of the changes there and, uh, and then, of course, working with them on their plans. Our goal is uh, very much to make 
sure that ENT uh, reflects what lo our local workforce needs are, and uh, to make sure that we're matching individual participants to either training or jobs that make sense for them. Uh, you know, a couple, uh, one, I, I saw a terrific program in Nevada that actually really, uh, 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 I'm was, sorry, was quite impressive. And that was one that was set up by the casinos and local labor to train individuals for exactly what the uh, Las Vegas uh, uh, hospitality industry needed in terms of folks, highly skilled staff prepared uh, to work in restaurants or in hotels, but then also credentialing them so that they could move up the system from a bar back to a bartender, from a um, uh, custodian to hospitality uh, services. So I think that's the kind of collaboration that we really want to see and support. Uh, I echo that. And I know not all states are the same, but in many states, with half the co companies trying to hire, and I've talked to some businesses that have the trades, they'll actually help people go through two years of school, get them licensed or certified. I mean, it's really a, if you're, if you're looking for a job in many states, they're there, and people will train you to do it. So it's just something we can keep stressing. I'd like to switch directions a little bit and talk about the National Association of States Workforce Agencies, or NASWA. 41 states and the District of Columbia took the pandemic legislation authorized option to use private contractors to help shore up their unemployment insurance uh, programs during the pandemic. The states that took this option are both Republican and Democrat, uh, governor-led, uh, with more with more Democratic states actually taking advantage of this option. Further, NASWA has unanimously asked for an extension uh, of this uh, flexibility, and some SNAP directors have recently asked for 12 months of similar flexibility. So I'd just like to get your, you touched on this early on. Can you provide your position on this? Well, the statute uh, requires that we use merit system personnel for certain aspects of state operations. Uh, so I think we've been focusing on making sure states understand where they can and can't use uh, private contract workers if that's a flexibility they choose to avail themselves of. Um, in terms of um, expanding their capacity. I, w I do want to say that when SNAP, th before this issue came up, uh, it was merit systems worker or whatever the state's construct was in terms of a balance of private and um, public workers that helped, uh, that, that allowed the program to grow dramatically in the early days of the pandemic under extraordinary circumstances, right? Many workers had shifted mm -hmm. to home. They hadn't been working from home before. It was an incredibly impressive. Uh, so... Um, uh, I think the, the current problem that we're looking at is states are, uh, like many employers, having uh, a difficulty bringing on labor and, um, and, and being able to predict what the future will hold. So we want to work with them on that and make sure they understand what their options are. But what the system we have now has worked well for 40, dec or four, 40 years, four decades, uh, and I would be very careful before making any significant changes to it. But are we having backlogs with the stamp processing? Because I hear we are. So there, there may be need in some states to have this flexibility for stamp, like it is with unemployment insurance. Yeah, certainly some states are experiencing backlogs, and we would imagine when the public health emergency ends and so their current flexibilities, both in SNAP and the other programs that they operate, there's going to be a disruption and a shift. So we're working very hard to make sure they're trying to uh, get ahead of that problem and prepare for it. Uh, and thinking through their business model and who does what is certainly uh, certainly a, a, a relevant question on their part. We think they have more flexibility than many of them are available themselves up now, though. I'll just close. We, we don't want to see 
with SNAP, what we're seeing with IRS, we have a year backlog of paperwork. So uh, with that, uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. The gentlewoman the gentlewoman from Washington, Mrs. Shire, is recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and welcome to our witnesses. I first just want to take a moment to recognize how vital this conversation and SNAP are right now. Um, this week, new data from the U.S. Census Bureau shows 11.2% of households reporting food insecurity. Uh, the number is even higher for families with children, 14.5%. And um, the statistics for children, and I'm a pediatrician, are that one in six children do not reliably have enough to eat. One in six. Um, I also want to just take a minute to point out that my colleagues and I have had many discussions about uh, the issues at food banks, the long lines over the past year or two, the way that they've stepped up during the pandemic, uh, distribution, donations more than ever. But I also want to remind um, those listening that the primary program to help individuals facing food insecurity in this country is SNAP. It's not food banks. They're supposed to be the last resort. And if SNAP better supported the dietary and nutritional needs of food insecure Americans, it would really reduce the burdens on food banks, the rest of the hunger relief system, which has faced so many challenges these past couple years. And then I would add that SNAP also supports local economies because those purchases are made at local stores. Um, I also want to just say that one crucial, crucial uh, component of making sure people have enough to eat is addressing barriers for college and other post-high school students to access SNAP because those one in six children don't suddenly have enough resources when they go past high school. Um, the Farm Bill allows an exemption to the 20 hours per week uh, work requirement for students awarded work study, but for a huge percentage of students eligible for work study, uh, there are simply no jobs available. And, and uh, in Washington in recent years, only 2.8% of students eligible actually got that work. And I'll add that full-time education that I had, uh, whether it's grad school, college, or apprenticeship enrollment, that's comparable to at least 20 hours of work. And we should, frankly, just allow full-time students access to the SNAP programs. Um, all of that is why I'm a co-sponsor of Representative Gomez's EATS Act, which permanently expands eligibility for SNAP to students attending institutes of higher education. Um, I want to ask you, Undersecretary Dean, about whether we can find some practical, pragmatic solutions here. Uh, at Green River College in my district, the average student's 28 years old. Many have children. Uh, SNAP is a vital uh, resource for these families and millions of others across this country, and we just need to make it simpler for these students uh, when they are strained to access benefits. Um, can we recognize that the current regulations just don't account for the situation on the ground? And um, what, what flexibility might you be able to find, like uh, circumstances out of their control, like not being able to get a job, for example? Uh, well, Congresswoman, thanks for the question. You're right. It's a really important and timely issue. The SNAP eligibility rules for college students were written with um, 
what we call a traditional college student. So my kid, uh, who actually goes to the University of Washington uh, in Seattle, <laughs> and um, uh, right, who uh, temporarily appears lower income, but actually has the uh, support of, of their family. And there was concern in the, or the early 80s that those folks were getting eligibility to SNAP, and they needed to be uh, precluded. But, you know, it's, it turns out the traditional student isn't, in fact, who are uh, predominantly going to um, college or pursuing uh, higher ed these days. So I believe it is three quarters of students are actually non-traditional, meaning independent from their parents or have a child of their own. And so you're right that we've got to figure out how to refresh these rule these rules uh, that are just wildly out of sync with what the reality is, and probably are very much inadvertently keeping out. Uh, uh, needy individuals from participating in the program. So uh, Washington is de- very much a leader here. I just recently met with uh, uh, Claire Lane and others, uh, other advocates from across the country who are deeply concerned, and we're going to see what we can do there. And would really welcome working with you on making improvements in the Farm Bill. Thank you. And yes, there are food banks on college campuses in my district. Um, in my little bit of time remaining, I just want to touch on a program that's really near and dear to my heart, um, where we are also leading the way in Washington State, which is the the GUSNIP program. And it provides incentives for SNAP participants to increase their purchase of fruits and vegetables. And we need more funding for programs like this. Again, as a pediatrician, I can tell you food is preventive medicine. If you choose the right foods, incentivize that and train kids up on on eating the right foods. So uh, I want to address this as an urgent health issue and... uh, at one it yield back. Thank you very much. The gentleman from Indiana, Mr. Baird, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I appreciate uh, you and the ranking member holding this important hearing. I always appreciate the witnesses being with us and uh, having the opportunity to discuss the SNAP program. So I'm going to start out with uh, we know we know that consumers uh, really need to increase their fruit and vegetable consumption and having the availability of all forms of produce, whether it be fresh or frozen, canned or dried, uh, can be one beneficial tool to do so, especially when fresh only options are not available in the parts of the country all year round. So, Deputy Undersecretary, what is FNS doing? to ensure SNAP participants feel empowered to choose other forms of fruits and vegetables like frozen options in alignment with the dietary guidelines for recommendations while also addressing this nutrition security. Madam Secretary. Thank you, uh, Congressman. And you're absolutely right that uh, frozen and other forms of fruits and vegetables are healthy and nutritious are also uh, really uh, low-cost quality options. So a big part of the way that we um, introduce them as a a practical, low-cost quality choice is through our SNAP nutrition education programs as well as through USDA's MyPlate where we translate the dietary guidelines into... um, uh, menus, and uh, that's how we fundamentally seek to uh, inspire uh, households to uh, to select the array of fruit and vegetable choices that they have. Super. Uh, can you also, uh, you know, what is the agency doing um, to tangibly ensure that rural communities, like my district, have access to healthy foods 
And if so, is there more to be done to ensure parity with their urban counterparts? I feel like you uh, you teed me up for that question. The secretary is going to be so pleased. The, uh, absolutely, there's more that we can do for rural America, and uh, that's why the, for the past month, the secretary and uh, cabinet secretaries across the administration have been on a, a rural tour to show the, how we can leverage all of government to ensure that we're supporting uh, and uh, working to revitalize uh, rural communities. So I mentioned earlier that the rural development uh, mission area at USDA has... Uh, um, the ability uh, has a program called the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, which uh, helps support, provides resources to support grocers to come into rural areas. And the secretary's uh, a champion of finding ways to see if we can expand that program. It's it's interesting, uh, you know, food deserts. When I first heard that term, uh, didn't seem possible in a rural community like ours. But I'm coming to find out that there are those uh, situations in most or in many communities. But my last question deals with work. Uh, so could you tell us uh, what the agency is doing to emphasize employment and training? You know, especially when the businesses are ch clamoring, uh, trying to get employees. So do you have staff on the ground or guiding states to help their, their uh, guests to build higher quality programs? Yes, sir. And let me just add, in response to your, uh, your last question, too, of course, uh, offering SNAP participants an online shopping option uh, is a real way to address some of the uh, food desert issues that we know rural Americans face. So I just wanted to flag that before. Uh, in terms of employment and training, um, that's a program that states run with our federal support. But with the 2018 Farm Bill did... Uh, really did a terrific job at helping us uh, to work to reshape the program to make sure that it's that states are designing programs that are much more responsive to local employers' needs, uh, incorporate local workforce, uh, local workforce programs, and orientation to how to connect eligible um, uh, workers to the available jobs in the community, and to make sure that the individuals that we are uh, matching to uh, training or employment uh, are well suited for those things. So we provide support to the states in that, and we'll soon very be very soon on the ground in terms of um, assessing and reviewing what they're doing uh, this fiscal year and the next fiscal year. Well, thank you, Madam Undersecretary. We appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Appreciate you, you being with us. I yield the, back. The gentleman from California, Mr. Panetta, is now recognized for five minutes. I thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I really uh, appreciate um, this hearing, which I'm sure will be uh, many hearings in which we're going to talk about this very, very important subject of the supplemental uh, assistance, uh, food assistance program, uh, especially as we approach the uh, 2023 Farm Bill. And so that's why it's uh, so important to have the Deputy Secretary Dean here, as well as the Administrator Long. Thank you uh, for your participation. Uh, I hail from the Central Coast of California. Uh, we got a lot of beauty, but uh, we also got a lot of bounty, and that's with our fresh fruits and vegetables, especially. Uh, as you know, in order to harvest those fresh, fresh fruits, and vegetables. We can't just send a machine through the field. It's all about farm workers. It's all about people who are actually in the field, bending down, discerning what is a fresh, ripe, aesthetically pleasing product to then package into a clamshell or package appropriately and get it to the store shelves. 
Those farm workers are surrounded by fresh fruits and vegetables all day long. Unfortunately, what we have seen is that their access at home is not as plentiful as it is when they're at work. Uh, and it's been unfortunate uh, that this has been a problem. However, let me just also give a shout out to uh, some programs that we have there uh, locally and from our schools, which are starting to give their children exposure to our fresh fruits and vegetables. Starlight Elementary is developing a kitchen and a garden, of course, there. Our farmers are very generous. Some have pantries, Lakeside Organics there in Watsonville has its own pantry for farm workers to choose from after work. And then our food banks are absolutely awesome and they have been awesome during the pandemic. However, as you know, many families, many farm workers still greatly relied on SNAP, especially over the last few years with the pandemic, which has definitely led to higher food insecurity uh, in uh, many parts of my district. Salinas Valley, one in four children were still food insecure in 2021. And then Santa Cruz and San Benito counties, household food in insecurity uh, was over 30 percent, unfortunately. So I'm obviously proud of what we did at the federal level to increase SNAP assistance. But as you know, and as you said today, that's temporary. There's more we have to do. And especially with the upcoming farm bill, um, we're going to have to prepare for the fights of increasing and keeping SNAP uh, as to what we got. Uh, there are many programs in which we can make SNAP more convenient as well. Uh, the SNAP Carry Act, uh, a bill that I authored, would open up the restaurant meals program for all SNAP households and support our restaurants that have been rocked over the past few years that can need to continue to uh, recover. Um, my question to you is about the USDA and how is it supporting states and restaurants to become part of the restaurant meals program? And is there anything else that can be done to support this important aspect, the food aspect and make the SNAP benefit more convenient and meaningful to all participants? Uh, thank you, Congressman. You know, California has been a real leader in the restaurant meals program. Uh, California and just a few other states have taken advantage of it. And so um, I think during the pandemic, we saw an uptick in the number of states interested because of the very issues that you raise. Uh, often when we uh, see states uh, holding back on an option, it's just simply that they don't have the experience set. They don't necessarily have the models to look to. Look to. So I think with the few more in the program, and a few, uh, there are several more queued behind, that'll just create a more robust conversation amongst peers about the value and interest, and we're likely to see it grow. And we'll, of course, support that uh, uh as if as states show more interest in taking on the program. Outstanding. Um, I got a minute left. Just want to go on to another topic. I'm also a member of the House Armed Services Committee, and I've been working to get military hunger prevention legislation across the goal line. Uh, currently, you got tens of thousands of service members who struggle to feed and support their families, around 20 percent of active service members, actually. It's, uh, I'm ashamed to say it. Current SNAP guidelines often disqualify them from accessing this federal lifeline, as you know. Uh, Senator Duckworth uh, or in the Senate and I, myself have introduced the Military Hunger Prevention Act, which would expand eligibility and modify income calculations to exclude the BAH which is used to determine SNAP eligibility. Um, we're, we're working right now in the House to, on, on a version. Can you commit to working with us to find a suitable solution to address the issue of military hunger and provide our service members access that they deserve to, at, the, at a minimum to the established nutrition programs like SNAP? 
Of course, sir. And I w- let me just say, I w- I we're so appreciative of the basic needs allowance that Congress just passed. We think by raising pay of military members, actually making it so that their pay is that they don't qualify for food assistance because they're getting sufficient income is uh, really going to be a powerful way forward. But absolutely, we're happy to work with you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your testimony today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. The gentleman from Iowa, Mr. Fenstra, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson. I also want to say thank you to uh, Deputy Undersecretary for testifying today. Very grateful. Making sure Americans are fed remains a shared and critical goal for this committee, I think, for most people uh, in Congress. My state was uh, home to Norman Borlaug, uh, who was very instrumental in saving uh, billions of people from starvation over the generations. Uh, His statue is honored in Statuary Hall, and uh, he also received the Nobel Peace Prize for his work. Those who are vulnerable and need food uh, should have access to it. Obviously, Title IV, the Nutrition Title and Farm Bill, makes uh, up to 80% of the authorized funding. So it's important that we get it right as we move forward. We are trusted by constituents to be good stewards of the taxpayer dollars. And my district in Northwest Iowa is almost entirely made up of rural communities. Uh, 17% of my district is seniors with 7% uh, in, in uh, 7% as veterans. So this is my question. This past Monday, the Government Accountability Office released a report regarding the oversight and collaboration uh, efforts to support veterans with few food insecurity. And we just talked about this with Congressman uh, Panetta. Uh, broadly speaking, the GOA, GAO's recommendations include the VA fully monitoring and evaluating the effectiveness, effectiveness of these efforts and that the USDA improve its collaboration with the VA. Uh, so, uh, Deputy Undersecretary Dean, can you talk to me or talk through the collaborative efforts uh, as you see them today and what the agency plans to do to further ensure the veterans understand the nutrition supports uh, available to them? Absolutely, Congressman. Um, the food insecurity rates amongst veterans are uh, disturbing, and uh, it's really critical that we take Uh, action to address it. So my team meets very regularly with the Department of Veterans Affairs, but after looking at the GAO recommendation, I'm going to ask them uh, whether it would be benefit the the partnership to formalize that, uh, as the recommendation, I think, suggests. But uh, the way that we, uh, the framework about how we've gone about this is we work to create material that can go directly to veterans to make them aware of their potential eligibility uh, that goes into their welcome home kit uh, that VA uh, passes out. We do training uh, when uh, VA asks for it of their nurses and uh, social workers and others who are uh, directly supporting veterans to make sure they are aware of our program so that when they're in a, uh, a conversation with veterans or aware of a vulnerability that can help connect. And then we are uh, encouraging states to use their SNAP outreach dollars to do direct outreach to veterans. Uh, but I think we talked with uh, um, uh, other members on the committee earlier about the opportunity to do more and whether the Farm Bill offers such yep. uh, the, the right time for a conversation about that. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you uh, for those comments. I, I think it's it's really good to formalize, as as the GAO noted. I think that's very important. And I, I often think, you know, the veterans have done so much for us and they're very proud uh, people that you know, sometimes they don't ask. And sometimes we have to uh, look out and say how. How can we help? And, and I, I hear you saying that. Um, Deputy Undersecretary, uh, another question. Your testimony closes with a call for, for to further strengthen SNAP. 
Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we need to be deliberate when we're making changes to this program. We have to be very focused. Seeing Title IV, um, it will cost roughly about a trillion dollars over the next 10 years, which is very significant. So how do you reconcile the dollars with your prog programmatic goals? I mean, is there, I look at results-based government and results-based government saying, okay, here's the objective, here are the goals, here's the outcomes. Do you see anything like this going into these types of programs? Uh, well, I think there's extraordinary evidence to support SNAP in terms of the outcomes that it achieves, both in terms of alleviating immediate hardship and then over the longer term with poverty reduction, food insecurity. And then uh, there's uh, powerful evidence to show that children who received it in utero or while as very small children have better health, employment, and education outcomes. Uh, but... Uh, because that evidence base is so uh, so powerful, and honestly, evidence underlies all of our programs at FNS, uh, we want to continue to make investments to assess uh, how the programs are performing relative to expectations. So we'll continue to do that. Well, and I appreciate that. I mean, I just think, you know, we are government together. It's not it's not government in D.C. It's it's we the people. We the people are paying uh, these dollars for you know through our taxes. And uh, I, I think we have to make sure we get it right always. And that's always a challenge, but we get it right through facts and figures and making sure that we look at the analysis and say, okay, this works or this doesn't. And sometimes we keep programs going on and on forever. And, and sometimes there's new ones that we can put on and stop other ones. So thank you for those comments. And uh, Mr. Chair, you're yield back. Sure. And now the gentlewoman from Iowa, Ms. Axney, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott, and thank you, Undersecretary Dean, for joining us today. We're just going to keep the Iowa theme uh, going here. Uh, I'm looking very much forward to working on the 2023 Farm Bill and on behalf of Iowa farmers and producers in particular, but also so that we can support strong nutrition policy that reduces food insecurity and improves access to healthy, sustainable foods for all Americans, and that means local. In my home state, there are over 400,000 uh, food insecure Iowans. That's roughly one in seven adults and one in five children in Iowa not having reliable access to food. These aren't just numbers. As we all know, these are our friends. They are our neighbors. They are our community members. They are the kids in our schools. They are struggling to get by. And thankfully, though, we have many dedicated Iowans doing a lot of great work uh, to address food insecurity. But unless Congress uh, continues to support and improve critical programs like SNAP, we are unlikely to make any meaningful progress towards food insecurity. And so I first want to applaud you and the USDA's actions to expand the Thrifty Food Plan as directed by the 2018 Farm Bill. Uh, the USDA recently re-elevated re the Thrifty Food Plan calculation, and that resulted in higher SNAP benefits for families. So the updated uh, Thrifty Food Plan, while modest, is estimated to lift about 2.4 million Americans, um, including more than a million children, out of poverty this year. And this also has tremendous impact for Iowa families. Uh, just last year, SNAP benefits helped over 285,000 Iowans, with nearly 70% of those participants being families with children, and a majority of them in working families. 
Uh, so, Deputy Undersecretary Dean, I want to thank you and others again for your hard work on expansion of that thrifty food plan. But I am concerned, however, uh, with how uh, food insecure families will manage as these pandemic related emergency allotments for SNAP uh, expire. And as you're probably aware, Iowa has chosen to end those emergency allotments starting this month, which means many Iowans have seen uh, their monthly SNAP benefits reduced. So I'd like to look at that. In your opinion, what has the impact of those emergency allotments been, particularly in rural areas over the past two years? And what does the end of these emergency allotments mean to families in Iowa? Well, thank you. Thank you, Congresswoman. As you can imagine, given who we work for, we are on a very vigilant Iowa watch. Um, so I'm going to actually turn it over to Administrator Long to respond. Thank you for your question, Congresswoman. Um, we we did uh, we do have some data available for the state of Iowa uh, with respect to the impact of emergency allotments and the impact of the the ending of those with the end of the public health emergency. So as as you know, the last month of emergency allotments were, were paid out in March, and our data indicates that about uh, just under thirty million dollars was provided to uh, SNAP recipients in that month, uh, and that was to support about one hundred and forty two thousand households who participated uh, in Iowa and SNAP. So that gives a sense of the importance that the emergency allotments provided and the, the impact of the transition. Well, thank you so much, Ms. Long, for bringing that up. Uh, when you talk about this 30 million, 142,000 households, um, what do you think the end of this emergency allotment will mean to those families? Oh. Okay. Well, <laughs> no, we can both jump in. I mean, I think it's going to be very disruptive yeah. uh, as they uh, sort out how to rebudget. One of the groups that will have the biggest impact are seniors. Uh, many of them would uh, typically receive a much smaller benefit, 40 or $50 a month, uh, but they've been receiving the maximum allotment, and you'll see quite a big drop-off. Uh, that's so very disruptive. I also think it'll have a big impact on community agencies who help support families, uh, and so we may see uh, many families turning to emergency food. Uh, and uh, so we're, we're looking to, for ways to make sure that we're continuing to support that community as well. Yeah, and I would simply add with um, respect to the impact, uh, and it will also impact your state administration of the program. I think Deputy Undersecretary Dean mentioned earlier that we recognize when these changes occur and the, the pandemic benefits uh, are, are transitioned out, there's likely to be a lot of uh, uh, questions and uh, issues that come up for recipients, which is going to translate into sort of more telephone calls and uh, expanded workload that the uh, state agency will be managing. Well, I appreciate you letting me know about those are not good things. And the last question I want to ask you then, and it, I think we also have another impact because studies have shown that for every dollar additional in SNAP benefits, it equates to $1.50 or more uh, returning into the economy. What impact will the revised thrifty family plan have on Iowa's economy and what will be the impact of the grocers, uh, uh, grocery retailers in our state? Yeah, well, I think it was mentioned earlier that the in the uh, the reevaluation of the thrifty resulted in a 21% increase in the in the value of the thrifty food plan, uh, and just uh, looking roughly uh, at data from Iowa, the last uh, year we have is a couple years back, but it looks like about 430 million dollars worth of benefits were redeemed uh, at Iowa retailers. Uh, so if you just kind of apply that 21% difference to that figure, that would suggest that that change means about another 90 million dollars. Uh, 
uh, available in the Iowa economy to support families, and then 90 million in revenue. That same 90 million in revenues will certainly flow through retailers in those communities. Thank you for that. The lady's time has expired. And now the general lady from Florida, Miss Kamak, is now recognized for five minutes. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman and our ranking member. Uh, Deputy Undersecretary Dean, can you walk me through why the update to the Thrifty Food Plan as required by the 2018 Farm Bill was accelerated and finalized without regular updates to Congress? Was it simply coincidental or, and, or was it accelerated purposefully? Um, I think the, the quick answer to that is that on the second or third day uh, of his presidency, the president directed USDA to uh, see if we were able to undertake the reevaluation more quickly, and we assessed that we were able to do so. Okay. So, uh, you know, we only got these updates through, you know, Bloomberg and New York Times and the Washington Post. So it'd be nice if the administration would acknowledge that, as required by the GAO report, that Congress should have been notified. But it, to me, it looks a lot like your agency in this administration wanted to avoid the criticism more than anything for what's been done here and push through the historic increase in SNAP by adding calories to the, the diets of Americans, which if you look at the research, it's actually contrary. So why, I say that to say, to the consternation of my colleagues across the aisle, I put forward an amendment last year in the budget reconciliation to delay the update until a full GAO investigation could be completed. I think that's critical, and I think the American people deserve transparency and accountability, and I'm sure you would agree with that. But I want to move on to program integrity moving forward because it appears that FNS opposes using a blended workforce to supplement merit staff in determining household eligibility. Now, at times of rapid caseload increases, it seems like FNS would leap at the chance to ensure efficient eligibility determinations, especially when other safety net programs do just that regularly. So if this is true, can you tell me the rationale? And will FNS make a commitment to work with Congress to pass legislation allowing eligibility determinations to be made by contracted personnel? Uh, Congresswoman, uh, we don't oppose a blended workforce. In fact, most states have them. The question is about where to draw the line with which functions need to stay with uh, state or local government workers. So we are focused on, uh, and we believe the stat this is where the statute is, eligibility determinations, the interview, and uh, uh, areas where we're um, it, with maintaining privacy of very uh, private personal information from households. So that's sort of the core nexus that we think needs to stay with um, state personnel. But the prior administration put out a um, guidance uh, in 2020 that outlined some of the functions given technology and the way the uh, the, what's the right way to say it? The business flow has changed, uh, identifying new opportunities to consider, as, as you pointed out, a bl uh, bringing in a blended workforce. And I think that was very sensible, and we've been talking with states about it uh, when they raise their labor force challenges. I appreciate that, that feedback. It's not every day that you hear this administration compliment the previous administration's <laughs> uh, work. So I do appreciate that. And uh, I do want to end on this because I, I do think that we can all kind of come together on this. And as someone who uh, about 
11 years ago, uh, found myself homeless. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with my journey to Congress, but uh, a little over a decade ago, I was homeless. And now I serve in the House of Representatives along colleagues who, while I was homeless, talking about these same programs, were here. So I, I think by the very definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. I think it's time that we start looking at new approaches. And um, we talk about SNAP as a safety net. And we talk about it in the terms of bringing integrity and, and a hand out rather, or a hand up rather than a hand out. And I think every member on this committee, every member in the House of Representatives serves constituents that are in need of this program. So we want it to be uh, useful, but we don't want it to be a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And we want to talk about self-sufficiency and integrity without making people dependent. And it seems like today we deal with a lot of programs that are really designed by their very nature to create dependence rather than self-sufficiency. So um, I hope this administration um, will work with us on that and uh, will not see COVID as an excuse moving forward. Um, I look forward, truly, to working with my colleagues and the administration uh, to shore up any future updates. Hopefully we can work closely on those updates to ensure that it cannot be used in a blatantly partisan manner as we've seen in, in the past. And with that, I yield back and thank you for being here today. Thank you. The gentlewoman from the U.S. Virgin Islands, Ms. Plaskett who is also the chair of the subcommittee on biotechnology, horticulture, and research, is now recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman. And I also want to thank the subcommittee chair, uh, our good colleague, Congresswoman Johanna Hayes, for uh, working with you, Mr. Chair, on, this, on having this hearing, which is so vitally important to the Farm Bill. Uh, I have several questions that I'd like to ask the witness, and um, I want to thank you as well for your honesty and for your openness and hearing our suggestions and having a discussion with us. Now, uh, I understand that the USDA ERS study showed that food insecurity in the U.S. has remained steady in 2020 when compared to 2019, despite the pandemic. However, in the Census Household Plus survey data, for early April of this year, 11.2% of adults or nearly 24 million adults reported that they do not have enough to eat in the previous week. Um, it's clear that quick congressional action during the early portion of the pandemic was successful in staving off the worst potential hunger crisis. The increasing hunger we're now seeing is due to a number of factors, but how can USDA and Congress, if necessary, act to ensure that our safety net programs like SNAP are providing sufficient support for Americans in need. Uh, thank you, Congresswoman, for your question. Um, we we uh, were, 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 what's the right way to say? It? We were very pleased that the response that wasn't just through food assistance, but through a really robust set of uh, expansions of support to households during a period of incredible crisis. It worked. And right. I think that's an important lesson for the future. Yeah, uh, and looking, whatever anybody says, the child tax credit 
worked for American families. That's right where I was going, ma'am, and that is that you asked me what we could do. I think uh, the president's agenda on um, making sure that as we recover, we're recovering in a way that works for all and that lifts lifts folks up, investments in child care, continuing the um, expansions of the CTC and the EITC, supporting housing, uh, as well as the investments in uh, summer feeding that uh, USDA sought for our um, uh, building off of pandemic EBT, uh, those would be critical investments uh, to addressing the hardships that you described. Thank you. Um, my second question is related to the farm to school program. <clears throat> now, the Department of Agriculture's farm to school program includes uh, $5 million in annual mandatory funding. And since it's obsession its inception in 2013, USDA has awarded over uh, $52 million through farm school grants, funding a total of 719 projects, reaching almost 21 million students and 47,000 schools. We've seen increased demand for farm school programming, and as we emerge from the pandemic, we must ensure that this program has the necessary resources. Do you support proposals like the Farm to School Act of 2021, H.R. 1768, to allow more of these impacted projects to be realized by increasing the annual mandatory funding to $15 million and the maximum grant award amount of $250,000, expanding markets to local farms and targeting increased participation? So targeted uh, participation, expanding markets to local farms, and increasing the mandatory funding, uh, amongst other provisions. Well, thank you for that question, Congresswoman. We uh, certainly share your uh, uh, view on the incredible value of the Farm to School program. Uh, you're obviously very well versed in its impact. We, um, I, I can share from personal experience that I've, I've that nothing is uh, more motivating for schools and students and the entire community than really engaging around where their food comes from and integrating what's happening in schools with what's happening in the broader community, uh, including local producers. So we would be absolutely delighted uh, to work with you uh, moving forward to look at how we can strengthen that program in some of the ways you've described, and we can also be happy to offer uh, other observations and experiences. Well, uh, I'm, our office is excited about the work that we have coming up and how we can all be supportive of one another um, in the Virgin Islands with the amount of students that we have living in poverty. We know how critical uh, the farm to school program is to not only support our small farming community, micro farmers that are, you know, one of their primary markets is this as well as to our seniors, but also to ensure that our, our students have nutritious food so that they can think and they can learn and they can be productive members of our society. So again, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity to speak and to ask questions of these witnesses, and I yield back. And thank you, Ms. Paskin. And now the general lady from Louisiana, Ms. Letlow, is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Scott. I represent the 5th District of Louisiana, which is home to many rural communities and agriculture and small businesses are the backbone of our local economies. When reviewing the USDA nutrition programs, I believe it's essential to ensure they are adequately meeting the needs of families, especially in rural America, where many lack access to fresh foods like fruits and vegetables. In the 2018 Farm Bill, Congress authorized more than half a billion dollars in mandatory funding over 10 years 
for the Gus Schumacher Nutrition Incentive Program to incentivize SNAP recipients to eat fruits and vegetables. In addition, Congress spent another $75 million in ARP with no strings attached. Fast forward four years. Louisiana hasn't seen a dime of this funding expend, expended in retail grocery stores, where most SNAP recipients do their shopping. Even if there were grocery stores offering these incentives, we wouldn't be able to find those statistics because the USDA hasn't updated the GusNIP retailer store locator data in years. Deputy Undersecretary Dean, the 2018 Farm Bill prioritized allocating GusNIP funding to retail locations. How has the USDA adequately provided retailers an opportunity to participate in this program? Uh, Congresswoman, uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll need to get back to you on that. GusNIP is operated through uh, another arm of USDA, but I take your concern. I, I'm concerned about your concerns, and so we want to make sure that we're uh, we're responsive to you. I would flag that the Farm Bill also included another provision, which allows retailers themselves to offer incentives to SNAP participants, and that too we haven't seen a robust take up of, and it's an area that I want to explore with my team. I feel that um, retailers across the country. Uh, uh, are, are, are participating with the program. They're supporting uh, participants through their grocery stores, and we'd love to see them uh, be offering more incentives uh, uh, at their own direction. Thank you. I'd appreciate that information. And it's also my understanding that these incentives are only available at farmers markets in Louisiana, yet farmers markets represent less than 1% of all SNAP redemptions. My grocery retailers who serve SNAP populations are very eager to participate, but they don't even have that opportunity. Why is this and what can we do to change it? Well, um, I can't speak to that particular issue, but funding for GusNIP is uh, limited. So wherever it operates, it's, it's smaller than we would like it to be. Uh, so that is, of course, something we're happy to talk to with you further about. Okay. Um, as our committee considers the Farm Bill reauthorization, it is essential to ensure these funds are getting to the individuals they are intended for and need them the most. One reform could be providing these incentives directly on the SNAP EBT card to help at-risk populations. Do you have any feedback on this kind of proposal? Uh, we couldn't agree with you more, and that's something that we're looking at, is how to um, uh, streamline and coordinate all of our um, incentive programs, farmers market programs, uh, and make sure that we've got solu simpler, easier solutions that would leverage off of the EBT benefit. Okay. Thank you. I look forward to working with you on that and my colleagues to improve this program and provide greater transparency. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back the remainder of my time. Thank you. And now the gentleman from Florida, Mr. Lawson, is now recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and a ranking member uh, for this um, uh, meeting uh, today. And Madam Undersecretary, uh, you heard earlier uh, from some of my colleagues about student hunger. The, the reason why I have this statement is I, I have here uh, maybe as many as almost 60,000 students. And I know while the, uh, uh, the Biden administration uh, had to support college students during the pandemic uh, and COVID-19 has only worsened food insecurity, intensified racial disparities and hunger among students. Once the public health emergency end waiver in place to expand uh, SNAP eligibility for college students will expire and many will lose 
uh, access to this, this very important vital life uh, line that they have. My question is, is uh, uh, the bill that sponsored HR is 6272, the College Student Hunger Act, would make permanent the temporary eligibility waiver passed uh, in the Consolidated Appropriation Act of uh, 2021 and includes additional waivers for college students who are eligible for Pell Grant and reduce the work requirement to 10 hours a week, among a number of other things. What else do you believe can be done by Congress to better address college students' specific needs? Well, thank you, sir, for the question. I, you know, I think um, we, we've been talking about the struggles of college students and college student hunger, which is, of course, a, a serious concern. But I think the broader question is affordability of college and uh, the affordability of pursuing um, any kind of credential or degree through higher ed. Right? That is fundamentally a pathway to uh, more opportunity in the work. In, in the workplace. And that's what the, the president put forward some fairly bold initiatives, um, uh, for example, to make uh, community college uh, free of charge to all students. Now, we may not be pursuing that path, but I think the broader question of is higher ed and college affordable really the core one? And then when folks are in uh, pursuing uh, a credential, a degree, um, uh, additional higher ed training, how do we make sure that we're adequately supporting them? Um, so I think uh, all of the ideas that you put forward are uh, terrific, and uh, I think we also want to make sure we do more, and perhaps that's with congressional direction or support, that, but that we're doing more with the Department of Education to make sure that education institutions are aware of all of the um, supports, such as SNAP or health coverage, uh, and that they're informing students of that. I think that that will probably be a much more powerful intermediary to students um, than assuming that we can reach them through the SNAP agencies, but we will do both. Okay, thank you very much. And, and one of the things you stated is that uh, uh, the economic fallout in the early days of the pandemic, however, inflation and housing costs, uh, as it was stated earlier, uh, continue to rise. Many Americans still struggle uh, to afford a nutritious meal for themselves and their families. Uh, so my question would be, uh, before public health emergency end, what can be done by Congress to help prepare states and better expand their capacity uh, to meet the needs of their residents? Well, I... I to be fair, I think states are very much focused on this. They're also concerned about the end of the public health emergency and losing flexibilities, not just in SNAP, but in other programs, as well as losing the additional um, uh, eligibility rules and augmented benefits. Uh, they they care about their uh, residents, I think, just as much as we do. We have uh, engaged in a very aggressive outreach um, and engagement effort, as, as have our colleagues at uh, HHS are out with Medicaid, talking with state agency leaders about where are you today, where do you want to be, what disruption does the public and public health emergency end cause for you, and what do we do to work together? What flexibilities do you need from us? Which peers, which, which peers do you need to talk to to learn from their experience? Um, and which of you are, for example, asking your legislatures for additional resources or supports. So it's a very active conversation. I actually just spoke with Secretary Harris um, uh, to think about other states and other parts of the country that were good models for Florida as she was thinking about how best to uh, set up operations to deal with these changes. Okay, my time is about expired, but I, I 
would like to comment later on uh, if, uh, if you get a chance, if someone asks a question, is uh, how can we do something about the cost of the meals? And I think it was discussed earlier uh, in uh, the conversation, and I don't know exactly what was really stated that we need to do. But with that, uh, Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you very much, Mr. Lawson. And now the gentleman from the Northern Marana Islands, Mr. Saban, is recognized for five minutes. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Chairman Scott and Ranking Member Thompson for holding this hearing. Good morning, um, Secretary Dean. Good morning, Ms. Long. Uh, Madam Secretary, you mentioned in your testimony that FNS is, and I quote, working towards parity for the people of the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, Puerto Rico, and American Samoa. Could you expand on what you mean by parity and the steps the department has taken and will take to ensure that it continues to work towards parity for the Marianas, Puerto Rico, and American Samoa? I like the word parity. Um, good to see you, Congressman. I'd be happy to do that. Uh, as you well know, uh, as uh, probably one of the foremost champions on this issue, those uh, three territories don't have access to household food assistance in SNAP. Uh, instead, they're offered uh, uh, block grants. Uh, and so, um, although each one has a different potential pathway to having a more robust household food assistance program. In the case of uh, the Northern Mariana Islands, the Secretary has an authority to uh, expand household food assistance, and we've been able to work with the Governor through your leadership to do just that, um, where uh, it is the Northern Marianas who was able to put forward a plan or proposal for a household food assistance program that was more aligned with uh, the level of support that is offered through SNAP, although not exactly the same because that wasn't uh, perfectly well suited for them. Uh, with American Samoa, we've been in similar conversations, although I would say, unfortunately, their block grant sets a um, statutory cap on the amount of assistance that we can provide that way. And then in Puerto Rico, where it would be a, a much bigger undertaking to shift to SNAP just because of the size and scale of the program, we're engaged in, uh, I think, monthly uh, uh, conversations, uh, ongoing work groups to talk through the particulars of a shift so that if the committee is prepared to consider that, that each of the territories can come and talk about what SNAP would mean for them and their readiness to take it on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, um, I, again, um, I, and I know so many of in my community um, have food, access to food, nutritious food, because of the generosity of the American people. And I never forget that I am very grateful for that. Uh, and um, now, um, Ms. Long, if I may, um, two farm bills ago, Congress authorized uh, funds for the uh, development and inst inst installation of the EBT uh, system for, uh, for FNS, for NAP here in the Marianas. Uh, that continues to be unavailable. Uh, and I am sometimes made to understand from the local from the ground here that the that the obstacle may be coming from Region 9, from USDA, from FNS. Uh, can you tell me why we don't, still don't have 
EBT card in place in the Marianas, including, you know, one of my colleagues earlier said there was a fraud. Uh, there are ways that people can fraud the system. I Can you just imagine how you can fraud a system using those plastic, I mean, paper coupons? So any plans on getting implement, uh, EBT implemented in the Marianas, especially since it's been authorized and especially since funds have been available all these years? Well, Con Long, Congressman, if I may, I'll take that question. Um, okay, I think, all right. Thank uh, you. <laughs> we Thank are, um, we understand that this is something that, that the Marianas want to pursue. My understanding is that there's been difficulty in securing a vendor to uh, provide a system, but we're happy to dig more into that and follow yes. up okay. with you. Yeah, okay. Because, you know, Blake was able to do this and get this program running, um, running very well on in fact, I know of one department store here that sells grocery, and I encourage them to get us get up and prepare for for EBTs, and they and they did, and uh, and it's working well uh, to their delight. And but anyway, uh, Miss Dean, thank you, Madam Secretary, uh, thank you to you, your staff, your your colleagues, and and your department for everything you continue to do for us. It's not always very smooth and not always easy, but please know that it's always very much appreciated. Um, Mr. Chairman, thank you for the hearing, and I, I yield my time back. Well, thank you, Mr. Saban. And we have reached the end of our hearing today. But before we adjourn, I certainly want to recognize the ranking member for his closing remarks, my closing remarks. And also, we have a special guest with us. So, please... Your ranking member, recognize for your closing remarks. I'll do that. Thank you very much, Chairman. First of all, you know, thank you to our USDA leaders and uh, here and for testifying your leadership. I look forward to continuing to work with you, and I'll make a few more comments on the session. I want to take the liberty of recognizing um, uh, some folks here. Well, first of all, I want to thank the staff, uh, that uh, both of our staffs, for their their work um, on due diligence as we uh, prepare for the 2023 Farm Bill. I thought this was, uh, this is the kind of hearings I look forward to. I think they're instructive. Having folks from USDA, they're responsible for implementing these various titles. And um, so uh, thank you, uh, ladies, for your leadership and being here. Um, I want to I recognize, I've got a, uh, we've a, a, have, I've had the pleasure of uh, working with a very sp special student intern that's been with us, and this is her uh, uh uh, final uh, week, and uh, she's from Texas A&M, uh, Tatum uh, Houseman. And so thank you to her for her work. Best wishes are continued education. And then I, uh, I brought another friend of mine with me, uh, Seth Parrish. And Seth is, uh, stand up there, Seth. Hey, there he is. <laughs> Seth, Seth is a... Uh, Why don't we give a hand for both of these yeah. young ladies? Seth is a I Seth is a. I would have brought friends. There you go. Well, <laughs> Seth, Seth is a sixth grader uh, from Maryland. Uh, he's been a friend of mine for many years. This is the fourth year he's uh, 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 shadowed me. He's uh, part of an organization called Tuesday's Children, uh, where his family, uh, uh, his dad. Uh, uh, served and sacrificed and sadly, uh, uh, in the army and, uh, and sadly was, uh, died, uh, yeah, in, the, in, um, uh, about a month before, uh, Seth was born. And so, uh, but Seth has become a really, uh, close friend and really happy to have him here today. I just had him on the house floor, uh, yeah. where, where I bragged on him a little bit. Uh, Way to go. Yeah. So, uh, 
Um, and, and in terms of this hearing, my, my thanks to the witnesses. We uh, Obviously, I laid out my initial principles in looking at the, um, the nutrition title. I really believe in uh, like a true, uh, true north on a compass where you lay your principles out first. And it helps you cut through sometimes some of the minutia and also some of the controversy if we stay focused based on principles. And I've laid those out in my opening comments. We obviously need to make certain our intentions create good outcomes. Uh, we, uh, um, we need to have executive action that's transparent. Uh, we need to work together to promote work, integrity, and, and great nutritional outcomes um, that, we're, that I think we're all dedicated to. I know we're all dedicated to. And, uh, and I will, we will follow up. Uh, I'll follow up with some uh, additional questions for the record. So with that, thank you so much for your testimony today. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. And thank you, uh, ranking member, for your expert participation, as always. It's a pleasure working with you. And um, I want to thank the members of the committee. I certainly want to thank our distinguished chairman of our subcommittee for the great work that she is doing. Please give her a hand. Thank you. And, of course, I want to thank the Deputy Undersecretary, uh, Ms. Dean, and our Administrator, Ms. Long, for taking the time to join us and presenting uh, this uh, extraordinary hearing. This is an important hearing and test. And now I'd also like to recognize Miss Jessica Shaheen. Now, let me tell you about her, Miss Shaheen. She is here today, and I uh, am so delighted for your long service that you have given to us in this area. And as I look at you, I just want you to know there is no greater thing you could be doing than making sure that people receive food. We can do without a lot of things, but the one thing we cannot do without is food. And you have uh, put in 18 years of incredible service. You started at the USDA in 2001 as the Associate Administrator for SNAP and has become an institution in the SNAP world. And we thank you for that. You are a blessing and have been a blessing to our nation. And please, won't you join me, everyone, in giving her a most deserving round of applause. Thank you so much for your service. Really appreciate it. Now, as we continue to review the previous Farm Bill, and look forward to the upcoming 2023 Farm Bill, I hope we will all keep in mind what we heard from USDA today. The Farm Bill is one of the most unique legislative packages 
in Congress. As was referenced, it is close to 80% of our spending package with our farm bill. That shows you the importance of what we're doing with this committee, and particularly with SNAP, with a, a long history of passing a bipartisan coalition of urban, suburban, and rural members of Congress joining together for the collective purpose of supporting our nation's food system all the way from the farmer to the consumer. SNAP is a vital piece of that puzzle, providing Americans in need with a hand up, not a handout. And there's no greater hand up we need than to make sure we're healthy. And you cannot be healthy without the proper food being put on the food tables of our families, regardless of their circumstance, but particularly for the lower income and people who are struggling. And as we pointed out earlier, special groups like our veterans who are suffering right today from hunger. And I just look forward to working as we have been with our subcommittee chairman on this bill to help our veterans. And this is why in the next farm bill, I will continue to be committed to protecting and preserving SNAP to ensure that it will continue to serve as our nation's frontline anti-hunger program for many decades to come. Again, thank you all for joining us today. And uh, now we reach adjournment, and I must read these words. Under the rules of the committee, the record of today's hearing will remain open for 10 calendar days to receive additional material and supplementary written responses from the witnesses to any question posed by our members. And with that, this hearing is adjourned.